if this is supposed to be the year of the pitcher, why are so many pitchers bad? I'll ask Gene McCaffrey about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 21st. It's show number 15 of the 2021 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with the wise guy of fantasy baseball. Yes, it's Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic discussing why the latest year of the pitcher has so many bad pitchers, his pending world record, parsing the hard contact numbers, how hitters deal with particular pitches, and even more. We'll also have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including good news and bad news in the Mets rotation, injuries to Corey Seager and Huascar Enoa, and bursts of upside potential for a couple of National Leaguers. Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Mike Trout, Giancarlo Stanton, Aaron Hicks, and more. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Texas right-handed reliever Demarcus Evans. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about a blast from the distant past. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? I had a recent visit from a much younger me. But you know what? Even though I was much younger, we had to talk some baseball. Yes, I had a chance to listen to a very old, early version of Baseball HQ Radio this week. It was quite interesting to hear myself talking with Ron Chandler and Derek McCamey about rising stars like Dan Heron and Russ Adams. I'll have the full story in my extra innings commentary near the end of the show. That's what we call in the podcast biz a teaser. But there's no teasing with our first segment. It's part one of our feature expert interview with the wise guy of fantasy baseball, Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. Gene, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, Patrick. Great to be here. How are your uh, fantasy teams doing so far as we hit the mid-May when we're supposed to be thinking this is what our teams are? Well, I've got four teams in their rank from 2nd to 13th. So it's a mixed bag. Um, Basically, I'm trying to stay ahead of the injuries. The only team that's doing really well is the best ball team that I I think I've got that thing sussed out. But I'm having trouble with injuries on the other one and various problems. But I think I've got good teams, so I'm optimistic for the the long term. When you say you think you've got uh, the best ball sussed out, do tell. Well, um, we talked about this before, that the um, the point structure heavily favors hitters and power hitters at that. So I really loaded up on those in depth. Did not pay much attention at all to starting pitchers. Um, I didn't draft a pitcher until the 11th round in that. Uh, well, I did draft Hayter as a reliever. So the idea is to get a lot of closers. Um the starting pitchers that you do get should be high innings guys on decent teams um, because the pitchers are only going to score for you unless they're fabulous in two start weeks. 
And other than that, I just want home run hitters who was, who whose slumps will be covered by streaks by the other home run hitters. And it's definitely working. It worked last year too. I would have won, but I missed the the deadline for the two replacement players that you get. And so I wound up fading at the end because I had too many injuries, but um, I'm not going to miss him this year. And uh, so, so I'm, uh, yeah, I thought it was the Labor Day weekend last year was the, was the deadline. And it turned out that it was the week before. Um, so I was that left out in the cold on that, but as I say, I'll be okay this year. I got a ton of closers and a ton of power hitters and, they cover each other. And I, I think that's definitely the way to go with that. And I was very surprised to see in my draft that people were like taking DeGrom in the first round, um, which I think is fine to do in, in regular, you know, rotisserie, but, but not for the best ball. It's just not worth it. Yes. I remember uh, talking about that, that with you, uh, the Jacob DeGrom angle, you said that you were going to take him first overall if you had the opportunity. And, and uh, certainly that's, I don't know how you could say that's played out because he's been kind of a little bit hurt here and there. But getting back to this best ball thing, I did exactly the same thing. I had exactly the same strategy you did. I, I focused entirely on hitters, especially guys who could hit home runs because they're what are they in the format I'm playing in? It was like they're 14 point events, something like that. You get right like six for the homer itself, then that counts as a hit and, a, and an RBI and a run scored and all of this stuff. And I thought, well, when you just if you look at your projections and you stack rank them, the first 40 guys that you should be drafting are all hitters and, and a, the occasional guy if you think he's going to get 40 stolen bases or something like that because they're worth quite a bit as well. And I'm middle of the pack in uh, in my individual league, and the problem that I ran into was I, too, drafted a whole raft of closers because I thought, you know, a guy could get three saves in a week and give you a bunch of points because saves, I think, are worth even more than wins. And I thought, you know, right. instead of waiting for my starting pitcher to maybe get a win, and as you said, in a, in a one-start week, even at that, unless he strikes out, you know, 17 guys or something like that, it's not going to be as worthwhile as having a, a, a closer my problem is all all of my closers are falling by the wayside, whether through injury. I had you know Yates and and a couple of other guys who got hurt right out of the gate, and then I got uh, guys who are losing their jobs, like uh, Gallegos in St. Louis lost the job I, in a very unexpected way. Um, I don't know that the, I would do any things any differently, but I wonder if if focusing on closers like that is somehow increasing my risk to a level that I should find somewhat unacceptable. Yeah, maybe. Um, I guess it's like anything else. You got to get the right guys. But um, and I did. I mean, I have Mel- Melanson on that team, and I have Hader on that team, and I have Class on that team, and so they're working out well. Greg Holland did not work out, so I'll replace him when I get the chance to do it. Um, Kimbrel, I have. Um, so and it's just a sort of mix and match thing. And yeah, you got to get. You can't have a problem like that. But I, what I would do is, when it comes time to replace the players, just get closers. Yeah, you know, I mean they're, they're they're out there. Yeah, they are, and uh, of course the challenge is going to be there's only so much fab to go around, and uh, I spent a bit of it in the first run through, but uh, not so far. I just looked it up. I'm fifth in my uh, in my individual league, 83rd overall out of about 300 guys. So it's not a comprehensive disaster, and I think I can still make up some ground, but. Uh, 
it is a risky strategy. I mean, uh, I'm not even leading the league in hitting points, you know, after all that. And uh, the guy who is leading the league in hitting points did draft pitchers early and just went kind of a more conventional route. So I, I don't know that... Uh, Everything panned out. Injuries, of course, played a role. Rowdy Telez played a role. <laughs> I grabbed him everywhere. Uh, do you have any particular players that are helping you across the board in all your teams? Um, no, because I'm pretty much spread out. I, I, I like to spread the risk. And, uh, and I mean, I have some guys that, are, that have done well. I have lots of guys that have done well. But um, pretty, uh, I don't have any of them on more than, say, two teams. Um, so... Um, so no, I, I mean I, I definitely spread the risk, especially when I get two guys who who I think are very comparable. I very much tend to take one guy on one team and the other guy on the other team just to. After all, I mean you can still be right twice, but uh, it's it avoids the all the eggs in one basket angle. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've talked before, of course, and uh, your. Uh, opinions about uh, DFS play are well established. You think it's a very good test of our acumen at player assessment and so forth. Are you playing this year and how are you doing? Uh, yes, I am playing. I am still losing money, but I'm not losing very much. I'm up to, you know, when I started out, I was cashing in 21%. I'm up to 27%. But as you know, you have to win one to get it, to get ahead. And I still haven't won one. You know, I said the last night I was having a great night and I, Needed one more home run, and I never got it, and, you know, like that. Um, you know, I cashed. I had Miguel Sano, and I cashed. Um, but, you know, I needed one more home run, and it was not to be had. Um, so I still think that eventually it's going to happen, and then I'll be up for my lifetime, and I'll be able to pay a few more bills. In the uh, 50-50s and double-ups, uh, I think that uh, I calculated it once, and I think you have to win something like 55% of the time to break even, basically, because of the rake from the pot. Uh, if you're playing mostly tournaments, have you ever calculated what the sort of break-even point is? It would be lower because the payouts are bigger, but have you ever figured out how often you have to hit a reasonably decent payout to uh, at least break even in percentage? No. Terms? No, I haven't, but it has to be, it's still pretty high because most of the vast majority of my cashings are at the lowest level or the second to lowest level. I mean, you really have to get into the top five of any of these tournaments to, to win serious money. And therefore, you know, it's almost, it's almost going to be as high as, uh, you know, it's probably, you probably have to cash in 40% or, you know, 38%. To, uh, to actually wind up in the black, something like that. Yeah, and that's a tall order. There's lots of people playing, and there's lots of good players playing. And uh, uh, Do you play in the kinds of tournaments that bar multiple entries from other players? As I remember playing in one league once, uh, it was a fairly low, I think I put in 5 or $10, and I won a couple of hundred. But the, and that, that was the only time that ever happened. And I looked... And there was one guy who basically took down eight out of the top ten prizes because he had, you know, 60 entries in, a, in, in the league or in the tournament. And I thought, you know, at five bucks a pop, I can't afford to spend $300 per tournament trying to get ahead of this. And, I, of course, I found out later uh, I actually met the guy, and he's a, he does this for a living, basically. Right. 
yeah, uh, I mean, you have to have a, a big bankroll if you want to if you want to do that. Yes, I do play in single entry ones, um, and of course, and I do pretty well in them. But of course, the payouts are much lower, so it's not. Uh, in fact, the only one that I've ever won was a three hundred person single entry tournament, and I think I won maybe three or four hundred dollars um, for first prize, uh, which is not very much money, and. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I've always thought that one of these days I'm going to do that, but I just don't have the, you know, I I just can't justify spending all that money, and and possibly being wrong. You know, I have I have a life. No, exactly. It, you know, to me, it it uh, it puts me in mind of of investing strategies. You know, where you have to try to figure out if you're going to be in the stock market, how you're going to play it, and uh, it's. You're, you're up against people who are devoting a lot more time and a lot more intellectual capacity and sometimes a lot more computing technology and those kinds of things to try to get ahead of the system. And it's kind of an unequal playing field when you're in it against those kind of guys, whether you're talking about stock market investing or gambling, because some people are doing it professionally and you're doing it kind of partway for fun and partway to try to turn a little profit. And it's difficult when you're, uh, your goals of being in the game are a little bit different from some of the other people in it. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. And Gene, at The Athletic, at the top of your Fantasy Notebook article last week, you mentioned that you had been under the weather health-wise, but that you're on your way to setting a world record. What's the latest? Uh, well, the world record is heart stents, which I understand is 17, and now I'm up to 16 with room for more. <laughs> um, so um, I feel good. Um I'm back at uh, doing my physical therapy, which would which will help. And um, yeah, it's kind of routine. You know, you go in, you have a pain, they do plumbing work, and you're home the next day. And uh, American medicine or Western medicine is really good at heart attacks. Um, uh, they're highly practiced at it, and uh, the stent thing is a beautiful thing. I I'd have been dead five times if this was 30 or 40 years ago. Um, so. I'm grateful. It is relatively amazing that the technology has advanced this far. I remember back in the day when uh, uh, having any kind of heart issue was, uh, in my lifetime, was really quite a dangerous thing to have. The surgeries were dangerous. The the uh, conditions themselves were dangerous. And um, certainly health technology has advanced. Uh, practitioners have advanced in the application of it. It's kind of a miracle when you think about it, just like vaccines and all the other major health things that we've uh, come across over the last, like you said, 25, 30 years. Yeah, it's it's great. There have been. I mean, we should be grateful for uh, for some things, and that's definitely one of them. Well, in that same article, you discussed the hard contact metric that we see so much in modern baseball analysis. A lot of fantasy sites depend on uh, hard contact metrics of one kind or another to determine how players are playing. Uh, you said, and I quote, it helps to know who hits the ball hardest when they make contact, but more helpful is who hits the ball hardest per plate appearance. And then you questioned yourself because uh, you said, uh, not so fast. I always thought so, but not so fast. What got you thinking about all this? 
Well, you know, I went in thinking that I was going to get two lists, one of guys who were going to sustain what they've done based on their what they've done per plate appearance, and then a bunch of other guys who were who swung and missed a lot. So their contact was great when it uh, when they made contact, but they couldn't make contact. Um, that's not what I found. The guys who who were highest on the list when they made contact were actually out slugging the ones who did it per plate appearance, which was counterintuitive to me. And it might have been small samples, but you know it's a lot of small samples. Three thousand plate appearances on either side of the ledger, so. Uh, it told me that uh, there might be more to this than than meets the eye. I would still take the per plate appearance guys for batting average, um, but not so much for power. I mean, last year, for an example, um, Miguel Sano was way high on the uh, per when he made contact his hard hit rate. But if he did a per plate appearance, he fell to like 30th. And we know that that's a much more realistic assessment of the value of Miguel Sano. He's not a top three hitter. He, he's probably not a top 30 hitter, but that's certainly closer to what he really is. Um, but him and the, and all the many hitters that are just like him um, actually turned out to do quite well. And so I think that, uh, I'm withholding judgment. I don't think that the, the, there's a lot of predictive value in hard hit rates. Um, I think they need to be combined with other things, but I'm going to see how this plays out and see if, you know, if maybe by the end of the season it's changed or, or it, or it holds up in which case I'm going to rethink it. Well, it does seem intuitive to me also that I've done similar work, as you know, looking at uh, how batters fare just as in outcomes terms, as far right. as hitting the ball hard as percentages of plate appearance. And if you add up the good and take away the bad, the guys who uh, have very high or very low negative results, because they're all negative um, because of all the times that guys make outs, but uh, that those guys tend to rise to the top. And my thought was that it might be the case that a player who has, like Miguel Sano, is an excellent example of a player who has good hard contact results when he makes contact, as you said, but the problem is that he doesn't make contact nearly enough. And it's not just that his percentages have to be adjusted or so forth. It's that a guy who strikes out that much is simply not going to be productive because he can't drive in runs. He can't score runs. You know, he can't do anything except hit home runs as far as being advantageous for you as a fantasy player. Even a guy who hits, you know, a bunch of doubles and some home runs and has a nice slugging percentage as a result is sometimes not a player you even want on your roster. Yeah, it can happen. I mean, but of course the, the, main characteristic of these guys is that they're slump and streak prone. And when they are streaky, they do carry the team, you know, for fairly long periods of time. And so, you know, they do have value. I mean, it's just a question of you have to establish a certain level of ability before that comes into play. Um, you know, some, some of these high strikeout power hitters just aren't good enough to, to stay in the major leagues. Uh, but when they do, you know, I mean, the ultimate example of that would be a guy like Chris Davis, you know, who was just unbelievably bad for, 
even when he was good, he would have these unbelievably bad streaks, but then he would hit 50 home runs in a season. And so it's very difficult for teams and for fantasy players to know what to do with them. Well, I guess a lot of it would depend on when you look at a guy like Chris Davis and you set or Miguel Sano or guys like that. If you if you believe that the total at the end is going to be 50 home runs, he's probably worth rostering. But you're going to have to understand that you're not going to get, you know, the hundred RBIs that you'd normally expect from a reasonably uh, contact able. A guy who's putting the ball into play in other ways other than home runs, and as I said, getting that run production. Yeah, it's a question of risk allocation and getting them when they're available. And my thinking on that has always been to bet against what they just did, um, at least on a season level or even a half season level. I, I would extend it to that. So if you if they've done fabulously in one year, you bet against them, and if they've done terribly, you bet for them. I mean, it's. I think you're going to be right a lot more than you're going to be wrong when you do that. It's not going to be perfect, but then nothing is. Well, you had two lists, as you mentioned, hard hit as a percentage of contact and hard hit as a percentage of plate appearances. And the two lists actually had 15 members in common, which seems also fairly intuitive. You'd expect that to be the case. And a vote of confidence in players like that. One of the names on the uh, that didn't make the uh, plate appearance list was be- was uh, Vladimir Guerrero, I think, because he he's just he doesn't get that many uh, that much contact per plate appearance because he draws so many walks that his his plate appearances end productively, but they don't end up productively for this particular purpose. Yeah, and he he's really off the charts on everything else. So I mean, he's definitely not a guy to worry about. Um, I, I, I I think it's more of a curiosity, and it's just a thing to keep an eye on, rather than something to base predictions on. I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's very predictive, but I want to I want to know more about it, and so I'll follow up on it later in the season and see see what has happened with the guys on these two lists. Maybe get some understanding. Some surprising names among players who made, did make both lists. Uh, in fact, one of them was in the headline of the story. It said, don't give up on Manny Machado, something like that. Uh, what was your takeaway on Machado when you looked at your lists? Well, he's just good. and you sh- Everyone should listen to me on Machado because I've been right about him like five years in a row. Um, so I think that he's headed for really good things. Um, I mean, his problem had been when he first went to San Diego that he had a lot of problems at Petco, and that's a thing of the past. And uh, he's in a great lineup. He's really a great hitter. Um, so uh, I wouldn't dream of uh, of trading him or you know or or giving up on him. I think he's he's going to be really good from here on. In fact, I would I, I it wouldn't surprise me if he hit you know thirty five home runs from now till the end of the season. That's how good he is. Three other names to touch on briefly, uh, starting with Alec Bohm of Philadelphia made uh, a, at least one of the lists. Yeah, well, he's having trouble with the strike zone, and I think he's a little over-anxious. But he's got the hit tool, and, and I'm not predicting that he's going to uh, blossom this year, although that's possible too. But, I mean, I, again, if I had him in a keeper league, I wouldn't even consider trading him or uh, giving up on him in any way. I think he's definitely got the hit tool. He's just a question of over-anxiousness and also this abominable weather that we've been playing in. It's just so been so cold and wet, damp. 
but it's 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 hard for hitters to do it and uh so i'm in the long term i'm very optimistic about alec Bohm. i'm not sure whether he's going to turn it around this year or you know maybe till later this year uh, well talking of weather uh, cold and damp san francisco's famous for it and uh, you also mentioned brandon belt i think he's been hurt a little bit lately though yeah um I like he's an ideal guy when healthy uh, if you're in an NL league um because he is going to miss some at bats versus left-handed pitching since he can't hit lefties but it appears that the the portals in right field are closed again this year in San Francisco and that was a, a big factor in left-handed power and uh I mean that had always killed him for his entire career he's really a very good hitter um he might have mixed league value um, as a, as a corner infielder, um, not quite so sure about that, but he's ideal for NL leagues. And I think that he's, uh, he's going to, the future bodes well for him. You acknowledged that your earlier recommendation of Philip Evans of Pittsburgh didn't quite pan out, but here he is on a list of, uh, very potent hitters. He's in good company. What's your update on Philip Evans based on this new information? Well, he's also on the DL, but I think when he comes back, he's going to play because I don't think the Pirates have eight better players and he plays everywhere. Um, he's very high up on the hard hit rates, and he's also not swinging at bad pitches. And when I see that combination, I think this is a major league hitter. Um, he plays multiple positions, and I think that he's going to therefore play. He's got a little power. He's got a little speed. I think he's you know, the kind of guy that can be uh, – a good filler player going forward as long as he's on the field, as long as he's playing. You also provided the bottom 10 hard hit per plate appearance guys, and uh, you said you weren't worried about singles hitters like David Fletcher's on the list, Miles Straw, guys like that, but there are some established sluggers in the field, including Eugenio Suarez, Joey Gallo, and Max Muncie. Uh, how concerned do you think a fantasy manager should be if he has any of those guys on, on a roster or rosters? Like I said, these guys are the streak slump guys, and that's what they're going to do. And I think that all three of those guys are going to do that. You've seen it with Muncie already. He's busting out. Joey Gallo may be showing signs. Suarez may be showing signs. And I think that, you know, at the end, as long as you didn't take them too high, I think they are going to pile up the home runs and have their streaks and and leave their uh, – the people who have them on their rosters relatively happy. I think that with any three guys like that, though, two of them will go on and do what you expect them to do, and then one of them will probably have a terrible year. Um, if I had to pick one of them, I would say maybe Suarez for that, because Gallo is is just too. He's got too much power. I think it'll eventually show. And he's got uh, terrific discipline. He draws a ton of walks every year, and uh, that's not something uh, that you can say about Eugenio Suarez, who sw seems to swing at everything and pulls himself out of his shoes doing it. Yeah, and there's a lot of bad pitchers out there. So, you know, I think if you pitch Joey Gallo correctly, you would never get a hit, but no pitcher can do that all the time, and a lot of pitchers can, can barely do it or not do it at all. Gene, this has been great so far. I'll let you take a breather. We'll get to some player news from the National League and the American League with Nick and Ray, and then we'll get you back for part two. Sounds good. 
Gene McCaffrey writes regularly at The Athletic. Coming up, we have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick has the National League news. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Facts and Flukes player performance validation, analyst Mike Werner looks at five American leaguers, including Austin Meadows, Matt Boyd, and Andrew Heaney. I have Andrew Heaney on a roster, so you can bet I read that one. In the GM's office, Brent Hershey takes a walk through the 2021 starting pitcher PQS logs. And in HQ scouting, minor leagues analyst Chris Blessing, last week's guest, has two editions of the Eyes Have It, looking at San Diego pitching super prospect Mackenzie Gore and at two right-handed pitching prospects, Nick Lodolo of Cincinnati and Daniel Espino of Cleveland. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have that player performance validation in facts and flukes. There are news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have those buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. Fantasy market analysis in Brad Coleman's Market Pulse column. Injury analysis in the Big Hurt, Matt Cederholm's injury column, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, we have tools like the player projections, updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Time now for our Market Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report and leading off our National League News. And welcome back to an old friend, analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. You know, Nick, uh, these news reports that we provide every week here at Baseball HQ Radio, it's almost always a just a parade of bad news, injuries and other catastrophic developments. But we're going to start this week with a bit of good news. Uh, in San Diego, both Fernando Tatis and Eric Hosmer are back from the injured list, and they played this week. They did. They both played this week, both played on Wednesday night. Uh, Tatis uh, went four for four and uh, came back with a blast. And uh, Hosmer was zero for four, but at least back in the lineup. Uh, so good news for San Diego. Yeah, not a lot of analysis to do here. Obviously, Tatis and Hosmer will both play in their customary positions to their customary amount of playing time. With one possible issue, and I wonder what you think about this. Uh, there's been some speculation in the baseball media that Tatis might get a few more days off than we might have expected. Otherwise, you know, day game after night game, that kind of thing. So they uh, just maybe give him a little bit extra rest could cost him three or four games. Yeah, I think that's certainly possible. I mean, they, they don't want him back on the IL again. So they may try to give him more rest and make sure he plays so hard that uh, giving some extra rest may, may uh, help keep him healthy and keep him on the field. You know, that's a bit of analysis I'd like to see from people who cover the team. When he first had his injury at the start of the year, the team said that they were going to urge him, and that was what they called it, urge him, not tell him, to maybe make a few changes in his playing style to 
prevent himself from getting hurt. Uh, they talked about sliding feet first instead of head first, for example, uh, maybe being a little more circumspect about flying into walls and jumping into the stands and all of those kind of things that he does because he's a very exuberant, very energetic player. And I don't know whether he's actually done that. And I'd be curious to find out if he has. Yeah, it would be, it'd be interesting to know and interesting to know whether, uh, you know, you, you begin to think, is, uh, is that really a good thing? Uh, because that exuberance, that extra energy, that fire is part of him. And so trying to take that away from him may not be a good thing. Uh, certainly you want to keep him healthy, but, uh, you know, I would tend to let the guy play full speed if that's if that's what he wants to do. Yeah, and it might be one of those situations where if he's not playing full speed, maybe he's just not as effective. So I think there's a balance to be struck there, at least uh, in the long run, because they don't they don't want him to pull back so much that he sort of becomes more passive and therefore less effective. Right. I think that's, you know, that, that's, there, there is that balance that you've got to hit. And so, uh, you know, who knows if they actually told him that and who knows whether he's done it. Well, a little bit more good news for the Mets. Uh, Jacob deGrom, the uh, maybe best pitcher in baseball, I think most people agree, uh, made a rehab start. He's got a side issue. He's had some pain and uh, discomfort in his side. He went to Low A Port St. Lucie on Thursday. Uh, Phil Hertz covers the Mets for playing time today. Uh, Jacob deGrom's start, how did it go down in Ron Chandler's hometown? Three innings pitched, 41 pitches, 13 of those over 100 miles an hour. He struck out eight. Uh, there were only two balls in play. One was a, one was an error, so a runner reached base. Uh, one was a ground ball in the infield. So sounds like he was in excellent shape. Um, there's been some hope that he would start for the Mets this coming weekend, uh, but th- that's not going to happen since with the, with the uh, rehab start just happening. Best case scenario is a uh, start next week. Staying in the Mets rotation, Nick, uh, now we get to the bad news. Carlos Carrasco has been on the IL for quite a while now, nursing a sore hamstring. There had been some expectations that we might see him soon, but uh, apparently maybe not so much. No, he's been playing catch, but we still don't know when he'll throw from a slope again, much less when he'll be back in game shape and ready to pitch. Uh, Phil Hertz notes that the hope for May return disappeared a couple of weeks ago, and now a June return uh, also seems to be in question. And Phil cut one percentage point off his innings allotment in our baseball HQ depth charts. Uh, unfortunately, might be more to come from that uh, from that reduction. And as if the Mets weren't having enough difficulty, they put right-hander Taiwan Walker on the IL. He also has a side issue. Sounds to me like it might be an oblique, which sounds to me not so good news for anyone who has Taiwan Walker on a fantasy roster. No, not not so good indeed. Initial reports downplayed the May 17th injury, including some reports that. He might not even miss a start. Those uh, initial reports were obviously too optimistic. It's still possible he might miss only one start, so don't get him off your roster just yet. And injured or not, Phil Hertz's report on this story pointed out that Walker's fine start to this season hasn't been a case of where there's smoke, there's fire, but more like where there's smoke, there's mirrors. Walker's been very successful so far in 2021, compiling a 205 ERA, a whip under one, but his skills have not supported all that success. Uh, base performance value was a mundane 68. What's more uh, worth looking at is his PQS logs. He's had eight starts, three PQS threes, a PQS two, and a PQS one. The one other, the other start was a PQS five gym, a real beauty against St. Louis. Seven innings, no earned runs, just one hit, no walks. But if you take that start out, his ERA goes up half a run, his whip goes up by about 15 points. 
Even so, Nick, that that sounds pretty good to me. I'd be happy to have a pitcher giving me a, a 250 ERA 114 whip. Yeah, I would too if I could trust those numbers and assume he's going to continue with that level. But so far, a 22% hit rate has depressed his whip. Uh, an almost 80% strand rate has really helped his ERA. His expected ERA is 4.17, which is more than double his actual ERA. So it was a good story going on here, but it looks like it may ultimately have a sad ending. Staying with the Mets, uh, Alain DeLeonardis covers the team as part of his coverage of the National League East in playing time tomorrow, the roster forecasting regular feature at BaseballHQ.com. And one of the players that uh, Alain was looking at this week is somebody I have to admit I've never heard of, John Eshwe Fargus, an outfielder. Janeshwe Fargus. You know, Janeshwe Fargus uh, is now the starting center fielder for the Mets at the moment. He may uh, be so for the next week or two. And he's impressed in limited playing time this spring. He hit uh, 286, 375, 500, one double, one triple, two walks, three strikeouts, one stolen base in 14 at-bats. So not, not bad at all. 26 years old. He repeated levels several times while in the Giants system, accumulating a 95-weighted uh, runs created over 592 games. Two standout aspects of his game are bat-to-ball skills, minor league 17.4% uh, strikeout rate, and his speed. This guy's got a 243 stolen bases, 91 caught stealings in his minor league career. In 2019, he stole 50 bases and only 413 at-bats at AA. And the Mets have suddenly gotten more aggressive on the base paths, uh, attempting nine stolen bases through 18 days in May, compared to only seven through all of April. Uh, current starting lineup is only a fraction of the regular's batting prowess, so perhaps he'll get to use his best skills whenever possible to try to improve the team's chance of scoring. So continue batting at the bottom of the order. But if you're looking for steals, you could do worse than speculate on Fargus for a short-term burst of speed and, uh, and deep in, uh, in the only leagues. He's probably worth, worth adding for a very short time. Brandon Nimmo is, of course, the regular center fielder there in New York, and he's still weeks away from returning. He's on the IL and no immediate uh, uh, ex- expectation that he's going to return to the lineup. So, uh, yeah, this Janeshwi Fargus, uh, if he can steal you eight or ten bags, even in a you know, relatively short stint, a few weeks in the lineup, and down at the bottom of the order, I wonder if that's actually a help for him to to, to steal bases because at the top of the order, you know, you're you're hitting in front of some pretty good bangers, and they might not want to risk the uh, the caught stealing. But as you said, the team as a whole is running more, and if if he's a running specialist. Boy, he could really ring up some impressive stolen base totals, even in the short run. Yeah, he could indeed. And one other thing to, to uh, keep in mind, looking at uh, at the Mets lineup, they they picked up a player for one buck this week. Brought in Cameron Maben from a dollar from Washington, uh, and Washington was willing to give the 34 year old outfielder another another chance with another organization. Maben had only 101 plate appearances in 32 games last season. Hit uh, 247, 307, 387. And while his plate discipline and speed were intact, 7% walk rate, 73% strikeout rate, uh, 105 speed, uh, 125 expected speed. So his power was missing last season, but he actually had a fine year in 2019, about half a season's worth of playing time, uh, 285, 364, 494, 11 homers, nine stolen bases, and 239 at-bats. The power in 2019 stands as an outlier, uh, maybe it hasn't shown that kind of thump in his career, career uh, expected power index of 66. But uh, better than average 9% walk rate. His speed is still there. He stole a base in his first game back. 
Uh, might be worth taking a look at Cameron Maybin if you're looking for speed as well. In Los Angeles, more bad news uh, there for the Dodgers, who've really had a lot of injury trouble. Uh, Corey Seager, their star shortstop, is going to the injured list at least for a month. Uh, Jock Thompson on this story for playing time today. Yeah, he suffered a fractured hand off a hit-by-pitch in Saturday's game versus Miami. Early word suggests that surgery will not be necessary, and that's good, and that he will only miss a month. If so, the Dodgers and fantasy owners have uh, dodged a huge bullet. Uh, in his place, Gavin Lux moved from second base to shortstop on Sunday and will reportedly get uh, most of his playing time there in the interim. Right-handed hero Sheldon Noose, 7 for 39 to date, was also in the Dodgers' Sunday lineup at second base versus right-handed pitcher Pablo Lopez, suggesting he could see more at-bats uh, over the interim. With Kiebert Ruiz also on the uh, Major League roster taking Seager's spot, the Dodgers could also get backup catcher Austin Barnes, who's 12 for 55, playing at second base on a regular basis. So uh, infield outfielder uh, Zach McKinstry uh, had an oblique problem. He'll be headed out of rehab assignment soon. And the return of McKinstry and Kobe Bellinger could change things again very shortly. So uh, it's going to be kind of some moving parts in the Dodgers infield for a little while at least. Still, for fantasy uh, managers who have Corey Seager, there's really nothing you can do to replace a guy like him. He's going to lose about 20% of his playing time, according to Jock Thompson's estimate. Uh, This is something you just can't fix. you just got to kind of put a Band-Aid on it and hope that uh, Corey Seager comes back sooner rather than later. Absolutely. I mean, it's the kind of thing, there's no way to replace a guy like that on, on your roster. Well, Nick, one of the uh, more interesting and weird stories of the week happened in Atlanta. I was one of the guys who was fortunate enough to have picked up Huascar uh, Inoa, the starting pitcher down there in my, one of my leagues for a fairly cheap couple of dollars in fab. And all of a sudden he's having a bad outing. He walks into the uh, dugout, punches the wall. Apparently the wall is tougher than he is and he broke his hand. He's probably going to miss months of action. Yeah, I, I was. I'm in your position too. I had the Waskar Noah in two leagues, uh, and uh, now it sounds like he's going to be out for a while. Um, the, the start was not going well. Uh, nine hits, two walks, uh, five earned runs, and four point one innings pitched. Uh, took out his frustrations, as you said, on the dugout wall, uh, and uh, was going to miss months. Uh, Atlanta has a number of options to replace him, including Bryce Wilson. Josh Tomlin and newly acquired Tanner Rourke. Most intriguing name there really is Wilson. He's had some success uh, late in 2020. And his last uh, start for Atlanta, he went six innings, allowing six hits, two runs, no walks, while striking out six. So I might want to keep in mind, however, that Wilson's other three starts led to two PQS zero outings and one PQS one. Uh, Santana came up with Pittsburgh in 2017. He pitched very well in 2018. A 3.90 XERA, real ERA of 3.26, and a 112 BPB, and then was sidelined with Tommy John surgery. So for now, he's not expected to pitch in high leverage situations. Yeah, I was just thinking when you were talking about uh, why Huasker Inoa hit the dugout wall, uh, it was like a, a parting gift for all of his fantasy managers. Uh, throw, a, throw a lemon out there with five earned runs in four, four, four and a third innings, and then leave the game entirely. So, uh, 
Thank you very much, Fantasy Managers, for rostering me. Here's your going away present. Great stuff. That's what makes fantasy baseball the interesting game that it is. Uh, We like to talk about Ryan Bloomfield's speculator column, Nick, uh, and this week's is called Revised Upside Projections, and this is based on the baseball forecaster upside projections that are included in some of the player notes. And Ryan looked at some players whose upside projections were included in the forecaster, and now they're being revised based on what's gone on so far. And Ryan uh, noted that Garrett Hampson is getting full-time at-bats in Colorado. He has five homers and eight stolen bases the last time I checked. Not too shabby for a late-round pick. Is this the breakout that we've been waiting for for Garrett Hampson? Well, it, may, it might be, indeed. I mean, uh, uh, five home runs have, uh, uh, and actually it appears that there may be some, may be some room to grow in terms of his, uh, his power. Uh, 111 PX, a 151 expected power index. And the weather hasn't warmed up in Denver yet. And his track record on the base pass is pretty spotless, 86% stolen base percentage. So after being jerked around by Colorado, he finally has an everyday role. And while his 250th batting average might be capped, we could be looking at uh, the major league stolen base leader with uh, maybe 20 home runs. So that's something you definitely want to keep an eye on with, uh, uh, with Garrett Hampson because there could be some, some real positive kinds of, uh, kinds of things there. On the other hand, uh, I've kind of kept an eye on what he does in Coors Field versus elsewhere, and there are some pretty dramatic splits. Uh, at this point, uh, in Coors Field, he's hitting, I think, about 290, 191 on the road. Uh, power is about the same, three Coors Field home runs, two Coors Field, uh, uh, two, two home runs on the road. But this is interesting. Of those stolen bases, only one has come on the road, seven stolen bases in Coors Field. Uh, not the kind of split you expect, but for some reason, He's running more in, uh, and it may have just been the catchers he's running against. He's been in the major leagues long enough to know who's going to throw him out and who's not. But uh, I found it very interesting that he's running a lot more in Coors Field than on the road. Well, you did mention that he's uh, batting 191 on the road so and 291 at home, so he's probably just getting more chances in uh, in Colorado than he is on the road, uh, especially if he's not drawing a lot of walks. And uh, the last time I checked, his walk rate was only around 8%, so he's probably not getting on base very often via the walk. So if he's not getting hits, he's not going to be able to steal bases, and maybe that's, the, maybe that's the issue. He's just not getting any hits on the road either. That could be part of it. And I've also noticed, as, as uh, someone who has him on my roster, that the stolen bases come in bunches. Three of those stolen bases came in one game. So I think he has a pretty good feel for who he can run against and who he can't. And as you said, uh, we're starting to see a lot of this in Major League Baseball. I saw a story the other day somewhere about the sort of measured increase in stolen bases, and the teams are getting really good at running against catchers or pitcher-catcher combinations who aren't good at keeping runners at bay in the stolen bases department. So it's to be expected, I guess, if you have good stolen base skills and you know that you're working against a, either a pitcher who can't hold you on, a catcher who can't throw you out, or even better, both, that there's going to be instances where guys are going to steal two, three bags in a game while they're taking advantage of, of an opportunity. The, the rule of thumb is if you can steal 75% success rate, then you should run pretty regularly because that's actually helping your team more than it's hurting it when you get caught. But if you know, or if the team knows that, hey, if it's pitcher A and catcher B, this combination, we can steal at 85 or 90% success rate, well, then you almost have to do it. Absolutely. I mean, they're, 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 the, it's no longer a, it's not so much guesswork as it used to be. Uh, you know they've got these stats. They're available to the managers. They're available to the players. 
uh, who, and uh, so uh, uh, certainly they're watching that and knowing where they can have success uh, if they take off on the base paths. The Cincinnati Reds' Nick placed infielder Mike Moustakis on the 10-day IL. He has a right heel bruise, and they recalled a second baseman by the name of Max Schrock. Sounds like a guy who was playing in 1890. Uh, Tom Kephart on this story, and Tom rated this a high-impact development and says it's kind of a bad break for Cincinnati and Moustakis. Yeah, Moustakis uh, has a career, a career-high walk rate coupled with a resurgent contact rate in his small 2021 sample. He'd been nagged by minor injuries throughout 2021, a continuation of his uh, 2020 Cincinnati debut. And staying on the field appears the primary obstacle to Moustakas returning to his typical production level. Yeah, that is a problem. Uh, Moustakas has the skills. He can certainly hit home runs in that ballpark. But for now, uh, as uh, Tom Kephart reports, off the field, on the IL. So what happens with his playing time in the Reds lineup? Moustakas' absence will cost him about 20 percentage points of playing time, which is really very significant. Uh, that playing time will go in large part to utility infielders Kyle Farmer and Alex Blandino. Uh, Tom Kebert also says Nick Sinzel is likely to see increased infield playing time, likely at third base, which might help Tyler Naquin add some playing time. Sinzel has been bothered by minor injuries too, though he has uh, adapted well in a return to the infield, playing both second and third in addition to his typical center field post. And he's showing very strong plate skills, though has yet to show any power in 2021. And what about Max Schrock, the player called up to take uh, Moustakas' spot on the roster? Schrock is merely a bench player, the last position player on the roster, first to go when any of Cincinnati's hitters currently on the IRL return to action. In Chicago, the Cubs placed outfielder Jason Hayward on the 10-day IL. He has a left hamstring strain. They recalled outfielder Nick Martini from AAA. This is another Tom Kephart story at playing time today. How does Hayward's absence affect the Cubs roster and playing time allocations? Uh, Hayward's absence likely means that third baseman outfielder Chris Bryant will continue his keen extensive outfield playing time uh, as he has as uh, he has while other Chicago outfielders have been sidelined by injury. We expect his uh, increased outfield time will mean a gain at third base for Matt Duffy. Both Duffy and Bryant have been hitting very well lately. Duffy has reemerged as a contributor after seemingly fading into marginal status in recent seasons. While he doesn't have power, Duffy is showing increased uh, vintage plate skills and on-base skills, 80% contact rate, 10% walk rate. Bryant is displaying resurgent power with 6.15 slugging percentage and a 187 power index. But there's a pretty big gap between his power index and his expected power index, which suggests his home run production could uh, could slow down from its current pace, though it's likely to remain above average. Uh, Bryant has also bumped up his walk rate to the low teens, which was his usual level for many years before it dropped last season to just 8%. His contact rate is still pretty low, around 70%, which kind of puts a limit on his counting stats. Martini will likely play sparingly in a reserve role. Well, you know, we just talked about that column that Ryan Bloomfield wrote about upside adjustments that are being made, and one of the players he included in that was Chris Bryant, whose upside mention in the forecaster was the possibility of a of a repeat of 2016, maybe an MVP-level season, and Ryan says we could be selling this guy a bit short. You know, uh, we we look at the various advanced stats, and among other things, Ryan pointed out that his home run per fly ball rate has jumped, which is sometimes seen as a negative, but he's getting barrels, uh, the ideal combination of uh, bat speed or exit velocity plus launch angle. And typically the last few years, 9%, 8%, 9%, like that. 
17% this year. And maybe, uh, Ryan speculates, maybe this is a year that Chris Bryant has finally recovered from all those nagging injuries that he's had over those last few years that have cost him playing time and obviously cost him some power. Yeah, that's certainly possible. I mean, Bryant's had a, a number of injuries that have kind of depressed the kind of the the sort of uh, numbers we we got from him early in his career. Uh, and he's also pointed out that, that uh, uh, right now everything is skill supported: three hundred three batting average, three hundred four expected batting average. So uh, if those kind of things keep up, he could be right. But we could see a, a very resurgent Chris Bryant through the, the, the entire season. As he says, the up uh, the up upside is a 216 uh, redux and a 200 million plus contract this winter. And when a guy's playing for a contract, that provides some extra motivation, undoubtedly. Yeah, I've never seen any research to support that whole contract year theory, except that maybe a guy feels a little bit more uh, compelled to put in an appearance if he's feeling a bit of a nagging injury, which in a case of a guy like Chris Bryant might not be a positive thing. It might be one of those deals where you say, yeah, we know you want to get out there and hit another home run so you can add a zero to your next paycheck. But, you know, if you if you go out there when you're hurt and aggravate what's whatever's hurting you, then you're, the zeros are going to start falling off your paycheck because you're going to get that, you know, injury-prone tag that uh, obviously costs uh, a lot of players a lot of money once teams think, well, if I'm only going to get 100 games out of you every year then I'm only going to pay it for 100 games every year. I, I've thought a lot about the uh, the comparison of the number of injuries we have nowadays and the number of guys going on the IL with what things were like in the past and a lot of that has got to be I'm sure the managers and the coaches have told the players look we're paying you a lot of money if something hurts let us know immediately uh, instead of having them play through things that uh, that could both depress their performance and ultimately uh, keep them off the field for a longer period of time. I think that's exactly right, and I, I don't think it's to be underestimated. As you said, there's been a lot of coverage over the last couple of years about the increased use of the injured list. More players, are they not tough enough? Are they not you know, as, as well prepared as they used to be 25 years ago? We know that's bunkum. They're better prepared than they ever have been. They're working out year-round. I mean, I, I'm old enough, and I'm sure you're old enough as well, to remember stories of these guys, as soon as the season's over, they go and, and start working selling cars or, or sitting around the bar and drinking beer all, summer, all winter, and then they have to play themselves into shape, they used to call it when they came back. These players are in the best shape of any players who've ever lived because they have all of these training advantages, the travel advantages, the metrics advantages. It's preposterous to me, Nick, to think that that somehow the players are getting in worse shape than they were in 1965 when they were smoking cigarettes in the dugout. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I completely agree with you. They're, they're in better shape, uh, and certainly they're, uh, but I'm sure they've been told, if, if, if something hurts, you let us know right away, uh, and there may be some penalties we don't know about for failing to let them know right away. And that's just good business for the player and for the team in the long run. You'd rather miss a guy for three games in a week while he rests a, a slightly sore uh, wrist or a slightly sore knee or something like that rather than having him play and play and play until something gives out and then he's on the IL for, for a couple of months, as you said. This is, uh, this is something we need to keep in mind when we're thinking about uh, allocating playing time. And I wonder whether it even accentuates this idea Ron Chandler came up with a couple of years ago where he said avoiding injuries should be considered a skill no different than putting the bat on the ball. And I wonder if there's more to it than even we know, and maybe that should be something we take into greater account when we're estimating player production or valuing player production. I, I think that's probably true. If we could find a way to quantify that, then we'd be, we'd be golden. But the problem is uh, 
at this point, I don't know how you quantify the ability to do that. Other than this guy's always on the field, I guess you're right. There you there, there's, <laughs> and we don't know whether that's descriptive. It looks backwards very well. We can say, you know, this player over a five-season span missed 44 games. But that doesn't mean over the next five seasons he's going to miss 44 games. He could miss four. He could miss 444. You just, there's no way of knowing because we, we don't know how predictive it is to look at a guy's past health record with his future one, especially since he's getting older all the time as the future rolls along. Right, very definitely. But, you know, there was a maxim that we used to talk about at Baseball HQ that said that, uh, uh, that frequently injured players never suddenly get well. Uh, and that was a good caution to, to remember that you may have the guy on your roster who's breaking out, but if he's, uh, if he's been injured every year for the last five years, pretty likely he's not going to make it through the entire season without something coming up. That's certainly true, I, but I don't know that the corollary is true that is if, if he hasn't been injured the last five years, he's not going to get injured in the next five. Well, I think that's very definitely true, especially with, uh, with guys getting hit by pitches that are coming at 100 miles an hour. Yeah, they're going up there. You know, uh, I used to live in England, Nick, and and I used to watch a lot of cricket because I worked for a guy uh, in a store in London, and he was a massive cricket fan. And he used to, we used to argue about cricket versus baseball and all of these kinds of things, and it was a lot of fun. But he used to take me out to uh, to the cricket ground every so often to watch. He was a Pakistani guy, and Pakistan is a powerhouse in that sport, at least at the time. And we'd go out on a Sunday, and he'd say, "You've got to go watch, you know, cricket." And it's a it's a fascinating game. But one of the things that I noticed right away, when the batters go up there, they're actually wearing pads, like almost like goalie pads in hockey. You know, they're quite wide, they're very padded, and they come down right down to the toes, you know, with the, with the flaps that stick out like catcher's uh, catching gear. And uh, on their gloves, they're wearing kind of like uh, hockey gloves, you know, big, thick padded gloves, because the batting style is a bit different. They're kind of more blocking the ball a lot of the time. And the ball is thrown so that it bounces off the ground before it goes into what would be our strike zone. And it bounces somewhat unpredictably because the ground gets chewed up a little bit like a, like a Wimbledon tennis court. And so they, they want to protect their hands and they wear these quite stout uh, gloves while they're hitting. And I think to myself, how long is it going to be before somebody realizes, you know, uh, NHL players now have these very small, very light, but very protective hockey gloves that they wear. Why aren't baseball players wearing these things? Right. I think uh, we may see ourselves heading in that direction once uh, someone is very sure they've got something that won't hinder play in other ways, because uh, having a guy get hit by a hundred mile an hour fastball uh, and then be out for two months. Uh, that's not something that, uh, uh, that, that teams can, uh, can deal with very easily. Yeah. You remember when, uh, when Barry Bonds used to go up there and he got hit quite a bit. And after a while he looked like a, like a 17th century knight going or a 14th century knight going up there with, uh, you know, elbow protectors and leg protectors and all of this armor that he was wearing. And people used to give him a hard time over it. And I always thought, man, I wouldn't go up there without, I would be literally wearing a full suit of armor. I'd be so scared. It just makes sense to protect yourself. And maybe that's something that uh, as we get down the line and managers and the general managers and the teams and the players themselves all start realizing, you know, getting hit by a pitch is something that is very dangerous to me and to the prospects I have for my career, especially since so many of those ball strikes and a hit by pitch are in the hands, the wrists, the forearms, in that whole area. And there's a lot of small bones in your hands and wrists. And and if one of them breaks, then you could be, it doesn't seem like it's a big deal, but we found out it is a big deal, especially for power. 
Yep, it very did. It very, it very is a big deal, and 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 could lead to uh, to months of the injury list. And so, uh, yeah, you know, if you could, if we could invent the uh, the exact protective system that would be lightweight but still protect, you make a, make a lot of money, right, Patrick? I think so. Uh, and the first thing that pops into my mind is Kevlar, which is uh, you know something that they're using in a lot of protective gear in other sports, and uh, the flip side of that or the or the unexpected consequence of that might be if you start getting these guys wearing a full suit of armor up there and they can't be hurt by an inside pitch that hits them they're going to start leaning in and getting hit by pitches because it helps get on base and you know improves your OBP and you could score runs and all that kind of stuff so i think they'd have to make a rule or adjust the rule book to really more enforce uh, the idea that you have to try to get out of the way. That's a rule that's in Major League Baseball's rule book, that if a ball hits you and you just stood there and let it hit you, the umpire is supposed to say, you made no effort to move, you're not getting your base. Just stand in there. It's ball three or whatever the case might be. And they might have to start enforcing that. Or two, they might have to say, whatever, whatever protective gear you wear to the plate, you got to wear it while you're running the bases. Right. Very, very definitely. That would... Uh... Uh, that might make a real difference. All right, Nick, uh, plenty of stuff to think about and talk about. I appreciate you helping us out, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com, co-GM and columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back. Ray Murphy, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hello, Patrick. Happy late May now. Getting closer to June and uh, summertime officially, I think, in about three or four weeks' time. Always look forward to that. Uh, actually got out on the deck yesterday with my wife and daughter. It was sunny and maybe about 27 degrees Celsius degrees, so about you know high 70s Fahrenheit. And sat out there, had a beer, had a few laughs. It was great. So uh, better news for us on the deck front than for the Angels on the baseball player front. Uh, outfielder Mike Trout, maybe the best player in all of baseball, a Hall of Fame t- level guy. On the 10-day IL, he's had calf problems for a while, but now it looks like he's going to be uh, missing six to eight weeks, according to Jock Thompson. Yeah, real bad news. It's uh, you know perhaps even worse news than initially thought you never you never really get an accurate read of how the guy looks when he leaves the field you know Trout left the field under his own power but then you know maybe he knew things were bad when you saw him just fire his helmet uh across the dugout in frustration knowing that uh as you said the calf that he's probably been managing for a while just uh just gave out on him so I mean six to eight weeks is a is a dagger for his owners here of course uh, you know, that puts us somewhere, you know, in the neighborhood of the all-star break is probably a reasonable expectation. Uh, in the short term, you know, it, it had already been kind of good news for Taylor Ward. He had picked up some of the at-bats in the outfield with, uh, you know, after Albert Pujols got released because Jared Walsh moved to first base and that created a spot for him. He had also jumped up to the leadoff spot, which was good for his value to be and his opportunities to be batting in front of Trout and Otani. Uh, so, you know, his place gets a little more crystallized here. Juan Lagares seems like he's part of the short-term solution in center field for Trout. You know, he's traditionally a glove-first guy, and whatever value he provides at the plate usually comes on the bad side of a platoon. So there's not a lot of uh, – probably not a lot of uh, rotisserie value to be extracted there. And, you know, everyone has the thought here, you know, what about the big prospects uh, 
you know, specifically Brandon Marsh and Joe Adele, who are both, you know, premium outfielders in the angel system. Uh, and the answer looks like not, not yet, at least, uh, you know, they, I wouldn't be surprised to see one of them arrive in the majors before Trout comes back. But for now, Adele in particular is off to a slow start in AAA. So they're, they're going to leave those guys alone and try to get by with uh, the likes of Ward and Ligaris and maybe David Fletcher making cameos in the outfield and, you know, duct tape solutions like that. I remember during the draft season that a lot of people were very excited that they were getting Mike Trout falling down to the 7th, 8th, ninth picks from his usual top three kind of level. Uh, for a long time, number one type of level in, uh, in most drafts. And even at that time, some of the analysts were saying about Mike Trout, it's starting to get to that point in his career where you do have to start worrying about injuries. Up till then, he had been a rock. He's taking the odd day off after a night game, that kind of thing. Is this the beginning of the end of, of Mike Trout, or is this the beginning of our end of seeing him as an invulnerable top 10 type of guy? I mean, I think it's probably the transition to the back half of Trout's career and what that exactly looks like is, you know, up for discussion. I mean, there are certainly some bad parallels here. You could, you know, take a, you know, the pessimistic view might be to look at the first half of Ken Griffey's career versus the second half. And, you know, certainly the you know, the injury track record with Trout here doesn't add up to that yet. But by the same token, when you look at his at-bat totals and his games played, like you said, he was that 155-plus game rock through, you know, 2016. But he was up so early in his career that, you know, 2016 was his age 24 season. And since then... 114 games, 140 games, 134 games in 2019. And now he's going to, he's probably going to max out, you know, if all goes well here at a buck 20 this year, probably less than that. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's a very different vulnerability track record than, uh, you know, than the first five years of his career. So, you know, we're going to have, as we go into 2022, even assuming, uh, you know, we don't know what he's going to do when he comes back, but assuming we have reason to project that his skills are intact or whatever, we're, you know, even if that's the case, we're going to have to hedge more aggressively and treat him as a riskier commodity in terms of, uh, in terms of durability, because he's now, you know, be getting injured is a, is a skill just like hitting home runs is a skill, right? Yeah. Not getting injured is, is a more useful skill. I think for, for sure <laughs> the upside of this or the contrary point of view, I think is that he's still not 30 years old. He's, uh, I think he's about 80 days short of that or something like that, according to baseball reference. So, it could be that he just puts so much strain on his muscles and his tissues because he's so strong that if he can unlearn that super aggressiveness and maybe get into some stretching or some kind of physical rehab that teams are getting much better at these days and understanding these kind of things, uh, maybe it's not quite the end yet. I mean, we, we, we don't expect that a 30-year-old player is over the hill these days. It's more like 34 now or 35. Right. And to, to be clear, if I wasn't, I, you know, I'm not suggesting it's the end, but I think it's the end of the, you know, the first half of his career, hopefully, and not much more of that. But I would not be at all surprised to see, you know, like you talked about regular, more regular off days and heck, you know, as he gets into his 30s, moving to a corner outfield is probably not out of the question. Now that Pujols is off the roster, some cameos at first base and DH are going to be easier to come by down the road, you know, we might see more of that. So it's just going to, you know, it, it could be, uh, he could very well still be one of the best hitters in baseball, but I think, uh, you know, def defensively and durability wise, it's going to be, a, it's going to be a different profile than what we've seen to date. 
And I think certainly we're going to have to continue to downgrade the likelihood of him getting a lot of stolen bases. He was already down I think, sure. to 10 or 11 uh, in the last full season. And at that time, people were saying, well, maybe this will be a bounce back. He talked about bouncing back and, and uh, uh, news versus noise kind of comments about how he wanted to steal 30 bases again. And everybody got excited. Oh, Mike Trout will be running, but he wasn't. He wasn't running again this year. He had two steals, I think, and, and no caught stealings. But that was in, uh, you know, 150 plate appearances, something like that. So if you t- if you prorate it out, he's still under 10 stolen bases. And, you know, put, flipping that comment on its head, too, you know, sure, you know, it's talk, you know, in spring training, everyone's in the best shape of their lives. I'm optimistic, et cetera. But, I mean, you could put a negative spin on that, too. And then if Trout's still talking about stealing 30 bases, that – he hasn't come to terms with the fact that he's turning 30 and this is not the body it was when he was 22. And that's just frankly a terrible idea. And until Trout himself realizes that, then, you know, he's going to be at risk of pushing through these, you know, trying to do things that, you know, put him in danger of being out of the lineup for stretches of time. And maybe we should, you know, rather than penciling him in for 30 stolen bases, pencil him in for 30 DL days. Yeah. You know, the other day there was a kid walking around where I live, uh, throwing a football basically to herself. She's a little tomboy kid who lives around uh, here. And uh, I, I was walking my dog and I said, I put the dog up and I said, you want to throw the football around? I haven't thrown a football around for years. And, uh, you know, you throw it a couple of times and all of a sudden the old memories start coming back and the ball starts sliding out of your hand nice and the spirals there and everything like that. And you think, oh boy, I could get back to doing this, you know. And then, yeah, I had uh, to feel the next morning. <laughs> the next morning, yeah, I felt like I had uh, I had pulled a, a tank across the, the halfway across town, you know, like a, by by my right arm alone. Yeah, you got to be aware of your limitations, I guess. Yeah, and part of that is you know, play, you know, we talk about pitchers all the time as they get into their thirties and losing miles per hour, and you know, getting by with guile, and you know, knowing when they can uh, get a guy to chase off the corner with with some slop rather than blowing it by them, and. Yeah, I, I think we're talking about kind of the same concept for Mike Trout a little bit as he uh, as, as he moves into his 30s. We all know that getting old is not fun. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. On the other hand, though, he has the skills profile that suggests he could be a really effective hitter for another number of years. He's always had pretty good plate discipline. He's always been pretty good at driving the ball when he makes contact. He has those kind of skills that seem to age well. Oh, for sure. The power should play for years and years to come. And, you know, it's interesting. His contact rate was down a little bit this year and has been trending down overall. But, you know, given the, you know, um, given the league wide trend in that regard, his, uh, you know, his hard contact index has been has been consistently above average, well above average and, and, and largely stable. So, yeah, this is not. Um, you know, Vince Coleman getting into his thirties and we're all like, how is he going to you know, be a, uh, be a roto, be, be a fantasy asset? You know, sure. The stone bases are going to go away, but there's, there's plenty to like about Mike Trout for the next 10 years on a, on a poor, on a per at bat basis. And the, you know, the variable that we're just discussing here is, you know, how many, how many at bats a year are we going to say? I wonder if he slips into the second round next year. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, New York Yankees put outfielder Yon, Yon, jeez. <laughs> The New York Yankees put outfielder Giancarlo Stanton on the IL with a quad strain at the same time or during the same week. Outfielder Aaron Hicks goes on the IL with a sprained left wrist. The team activated second baseman Rugnet Odor from the IL and recalled an outfielder named Ryan Lamar I've never heard of. Uh, Chris Olsen covers the Yankees for playing time today, Ray. A lot of moving parts here. What's the upshot of all of this? 
Yeah, the revolving door for the Yankees, uh, you know, kicks into gear. They, had, uh, you know, if, if there was a surprise in the uh, in the first six weeks of the season, is that I think this was the longest stint where we had seen Stanton and Judge together in the lineup for quite some time now. And certainly they had, they had had other problems. Uh, you know, Gleyber Torres had been out, uh, et cetera. But now that you know, Luke Voigt had just come back, so they were just sort of getting the band together. But instead, now a few guys have to. Uh, Go through the other side of the slotting the, the uh, slotting door to the IL for a bit, uh, you know. So Stanton's got the calf strain, and that's a problem we've seen before. Uh, it's a quad, excuse me, for Stanton, but you know the the lower body muscle strains we've seen from him before, and uh, you can imagine that the Yankees are going to be cautious with him. So he's going to be out for a little while. Aaron Hicks was a re- initially day to day. He had a uh, sprained wrist or a tendon in his wrist, uh, tendon sheath. I think I read uh, they were trying to get by with him on a day to day basis, but opted for the DL. And I'm not uh, I'm not 100 percent sure whether that was a change diagnosis or if it's just that they got into a roster crunch with uh, Stanton and decided to give him the 10 days and call up the reinforcements. But, you know, as far as the upshot, I mean, you know, the interesting thing about Stanton going out in particular is it frees up the DH spot. So there are a couple of ways the Yankees can go with that. They activated uh, Rodneto Dorr, who was getting some time at first and second base before he got hurt a couple of weeks ago while Voight was out. He gets into the DH mix. Miguel Andujar gets into the DH mix. Those two guys could even platoon potentially. Uh, meanwhile, for the outfield spot for Hicks, that you would expect to become Brett Gardner for the bulk of the time and Lamar just to be uh, to be bench depth for a while. And again, that remains to be seen whether this is just 10 days for Hicks or something longer than that. Chris Olson also commented on uh, Clint Frazier seeming to dodge another bullet. Frazier's having a really terrible year with the bat, and uh, they've been letting him play, and now it looks like they're going to be forced to let him play, at least until some of these outfielders start coming back. Is there any chance that Clint Frazier could nonetheless play himself out of the spot? I I would say he he was, I think Chris is right, he was probably at risk for that in a, uh, if the rest of these guys had stayed healthy for a little while, but he gets a reprieve. I don't think they're going to send him down for Ryan Lamar, uh, and I don't think they're going to do anything uh, crazy like throw a door in the outfield or anything like that to try to force him out. So he gets, uh, he gets a reprieve, but you know, the Yankees know what they have in Gardner, and they're comfortable with Gardner in center field if they need to be. So if Fra- if Frazier goes the next 10 days, two weeks, and doesn't pick it up, maybe he is the one who is at risk when Hicks comes back. Some fairly decent skills all the same. He's walking a lot, as he always has, uh, and his, his batting average on balls in play, what we call hit rate, around 18%. And he's a better hitter than that, and I don't know whether it's a shift kind of conditions that are affecting Frazier's batting average, which is still barely over 150 at this stage of the season, is starting to get somewhat alarming for anybody who has Clint Frazier on a roster, as I do. He's not driving in runs, of course. He's sinking down the batting order. There's a lot to be worried about here and Chris Olson says maybe Andujar begins to, to eat into Frazier's time except he's not doing anything at the plate either or hasn't right you, <laughs> the first person to show any competence at the plate is immediately going to uh get, get, get to seize the bull by the horns here in terms of regular playing time right yeah. um and you know the other thing to keep in mind here is you know these guys are all bad defensively Andujar and Odor are you know masquerade as infielders but are best fit it fit in a DH and I mean and ideally for the Yankees you know in another world where Stanton wasn't clogging the DH spot, 
you know, Frazier would probably be a DH and not an outfielder anyway. So none of these guys are, you know, earning their place in the lineup with the glove on a daily basis. So if they're, if they're not hitting any and all of them are at risk for a, uh, for a stint on the bench or, you know, in Frazier's case, I think he's probably still got options. So maybe even in triple A. You know, I've read about Clint Frazier and there was a time when he was considered a plus outfielder, a center fielder, in fact, I think as a prospect. And since he came to the big leagues, he's just looked lost playing the outfield. He's made just some mental blunders out there that yeah, really yeah, shake you. Well, well known in New York for the, uh, the, the mental error at the worst time. And, uh, you know, that all kind of got, for, got forgiven when he, uh, broke out with the bat last year. But, uh, you know, if he's not going to hit the, uh, the, the spotlight is going to go on some of those other things. In Baltimore, the Orioles designated infielder Rio Ruiz, at one time a pretty good fantasy baseball story. He's been sent down, and they recalled infielder Stevie Wilkerson. I vaguely remember Stevie Wilkerson as having had a little bit of a splash, but is this news? It might be, just because there seems to be real playing time at stake here. I'm not particularly fired up about any of these guys. I wasn't fired up about Ruiz before, but Ruiz had a, you know, a 65% playing time allocation between, uh, you know, second base, third base, DH. So when we zero that out and distribute that among Wilkerson and, you know, a little bit to Pat Valeka, uh, that starts to get significant. So, uh, you know, Wilkerson, as you say, he's had a you know notable cup of coffee here and there. It was, uh, it was back in 2019 where in a half season, he, I mean, he only had 225, but he had 10 home runs and stole a couple of bags and, a little over 300 at bats, so you know that's not incompetent. Uh, you know, I would I would be curious to see if the uh, if that power skill plays up, plays up again. We've got him allocated for a, a job share at second base, 50% playing time, maybe a little bit at shortstop. Um, you know how how much that actually comes to fruition probably depends on whether he hits. But you know the competition here is less than you know, what we were talking about with the Yankees 30 seconds ago. So they, uh, you know, he's 29. He's not necessarily part of the future in Baltimore, but there there may be a short-term window of opportunity here. Yeah. Is there a future in Baltimore? I don't know. <laughs> Harley Rushman would tell you there is. Yeah, well, and and he may be it actually. I'm interested in Pat Valaika. He's had a couple of years where his OPS was at around 800 or even over, but one of them was in Colorado. And one of them was in the short season. And other than that, it's all been sort of 570, 460, these kinds of things in limited playing time. At age 28 or 29, whatever Pat Valaika is, is there any chance that we should be looking at a guy like him and saying, maybe he's figuring things out or what do we have to see before we start to believe that that could even be possible? Yeah, it gets really hard to piece together these guys like you say who you know there's a bunch of variables here with great yeah he was pretty good in the short season last year he had a you know he popped up a little bit in cores a couple years ago but he's never even had 200 at bats in a season so we're piecing together all of these partial you know cups of coffee and trying to discern you know what he really is and ironically enough his career numbers add up to 599 at bats you know pretty much a full season so it gives you a, a, a sense of you know what he might be, be capable of in regular opportunity and that's 26 home runs and 71 RBIs in a full season sounds playable, except it comes with that 225 batting average. And like you say, about half of those career home runs came in course field. So we got to discount that. Yeah. Um, and, but so I mean, back to your point, which is the good one is as he gets to age 28 here, you know, is there a growth curve going on? 
you know, is there any reason to think that he's actually improving as opposed to just, you know, doing the same thing in these cups of coffees and we cups of coffee and we sew them together and I'm squinting and I, I don't really see it. Uh, you know, there's some decent line drive rate here. The contact rate is stable, but it's not great in the low seventies. I, I think he probably is what he is, but you know, again, you know, not to keep beating up on the Orioles, but when you're to the Orioles, you have the opportunity to take the long look here and, you know, see if you catch catch lightning in a bottle because you don't have any better alternatives. So I think that's probably what they're going to do for the next couple hundred at-bats. In Cleveland, and this was something of a surprise, I was actually nosing around in one of my leagues thinking about making an offer on shortstop Andres Jimenez, and now they've optioned him down to a triple a he's going to columbus earlier this week they recalled a right-handed pitcher to make up the roster difference so uh, i assume this means amon rosario now steps in and becomes pretty much full-time in the infield he does and for all of the time i know i spent a bunch of time over the winter and in spring training trying to figure out how the heck this was going to play out um you know there was some talk that Jimenez would start the year in the minors for service time reasons and get him and have the Indians who are always uh, budget conscious, try to lock up the extra year of control. But this wasn't that this was Jimenez earning his demotion with a hundred, with a 179 BA and, you know, just under a hundred plate appearances. And, you know, it, the skills are not what they were with the Mets last year, which again was a small sample size. Everybody's was in 2020, uh, but he's he's clearly lost some ground there. So the Indians are going to send him down to get some get some playing time and try to steady himself. And they have Rosario to pick, plug in at shortstop, which I'm not sure was their plan when they acquired both of these guys. We we're, we always tried to figure out how the two of them were going to coexist with the Indians, and. Right now, one of them is going to exist in AAA, and that's going to be how they solve this problem. So, you know, we'll see what happens longer term. I'm still not sure that, you know, both of these guys fit long term. I don't know that Rosario Rosario fits in the outfield. You know, maybe there's a trade to come, but, you know, Jimenez certainly has no trade value right now, and we'll see what Rosario does. If Rosario has a good summer, maybe they find a landing spot for him and give the job back to Jimenez. But now I'm just putting on my speculator hat. For now, it's Jimenez has to go down to AAA and show that he can hit over 200. And in the meantime, of course, Rosario was playing some outfield. Now he won't be doing that, and that seems to open up some playing time. And Tom Kephart says the big winner here is right-handed batter Harold Ramirez. Yeah, Harold Ramirez comes comes out of nowhere here, and you know the Indians have been trotting a cast of characters out there in the outfield, none of whom have been doing much, which is what kind of created the uh, the, the opportunity for Ramirez here, and he's. You know, Kep's given him. I'm looking 50% of the playing time now uh, out out in the out, in one of the outfield spots as they uh, as they play mix and match there. You know, sometimes Luplo's out there in center field, and uh, you know Ramirez has actually played quite a bit of center field so far this year too. But you know, they're lacking thump in any of these outfield spots, and Rosario was playing you know a, a decent bit of center field while Jimenez was a shortstop. So. So now it's kind of a Ramirez Luplo platoon in center field until uh, until the next domino falls here. It looks like Ramirez's big skill is just putting the ball into play, which is becoming increasingly rare in Major League Baseball. In 2020, he had uh, about 82 percent uh, contact, and uh, this year that's up to 87, almost a uh, 13 percent strikeout rate. Uh, is not striking out the kind of skill that will play in the big leagues, especially in sort of underfunded teams like Baltimore we talked about or like Cleveland? 
I mean, it's a start, right? I mean, at least it's a it's a foundation of a skill set here. But if you know if you're trying to assemble, you know, if you're trying to assemble a tripod, you know, making a lot of contact is one leg. But uh, you know, we're in Ramirez's case, I I, I fear he's still two legs short. <laughs> um, you know, he hits not only does he make a lot of contact, which is good, but he hits a lot of ground balls, a career rate of fifty seven percent. But he's slow. You know, he's got below average speed, so he's not beating out as many of those uh, ground balls as you'd like. And he's also not hitting the ball particularly hard. Is uh, you know, he, actually, that's one thing in just the forty-four at bat sample that he's doing very well this year that he has not done in the past. Uh, so you know, remains to be seen whether that sticks. But uh, you know, he, if he's going to make contact, that's great. But you you're going to need either more hard contact or more speed. He's not likely to grow more speed, so we better bet on the hard contact. Yeah, and it's not a bet I, I think I want to make. Uh, a, a rare guy, by the way, that you can say he doesn't have two legs to stand on. <laughs> <laughs> He's two legs short of a tripod. <laughs> That's right. A couple of legs short of a tripod. And uh, doesn't walk. I don't know if you... Another uh, good point. Absolutely. Yeah, 2.2% walk rate this year. And nine last year, but that seems to have been an outlier in the short season. Moving along, uh, Houston Astros, some bad news for them. Right-hander Jose Urquidy goes on the 10-day IL. He's got right posterior shoulder discomfort. And you know, as much as we hate to hear about elbow problems and forearm problems that are precursors to elbow problems, I think shoulders are worse. So this is uh, this is bad news. They activated right-hander Inoli Paradis from the IL, and this is something that Jock Thompson found interesting. They promoted right-hander Tyler Ivey from the taxi squad, and he'll make his major league debut, I believe that'll be tonight, uh, Friday as we speak. With both Framber Valdez and Odorizzi now in AAA rehab, Stinstrock says the Astros don't need a fifth starter necessarily because of off days. Why are they doing this with this Tyler Ivey guy, and what is going on with the rotation? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, Jack flagged this, and I, you know, reading around this morning, did not have a much better explanation than Jock did. You know, they it seemed like that they were going to be able to use off days and maybe throw in a bullpen day if they had to, though, to, to bridge the gap until Odorizzi is ready. He should be the first one back. He's already, I believe, made at least one or two rehab starts and should probably be activated after his next one. Framber Valdez is a little bit further away, but that just underscores there's more there's more reinforcement coming. But instead, they've turned to Tyler Ivey, and it's not 100% clear whether this is going to be a spot start or if they're actually thinking that he might stick uh, you know, until I guess until Framber comes back, because they're not going to have room for him after that. But, um, you, you know, it's uh, it, I'll be interested to, to, to watch that game tonight and see if, uh, you know, the Astros know some, have something there and I think they have something there in Ivy or if this is really just, uh, you know, one off situation and he gets sent down right after the game tonight, which I guess is also a possibility. In Kansas City, they put uh, Danny Duffy, the left hander on the 10 day I.L., Speaking of forearm flexor strains, that's his problem, which often, as I said, is a precursor of elbow trouble. Uh, this is really sad news for Danny Duffy, for the Kansas City Royals, for anybody who has him on a fantasy roster. He was pitching great. Yeah, not not only great, but you know, he turned to, turned something of a corner skill wise. He wasn't for sure as good as his one ninety four ERA was saying he was. His, his expected ERA was up around four. But he, but there was legit growth here. He was throwing more strikes. He 
was throwing harder, which was perhaps the most encouraging news of all. He had bumped up his velocity by a full mile and a half an hour from 2020-2019. He had spiked his swinging strikeout rate up to 14.5%, which is really, really good. So, you know, he had seemed like, you know, it, it, this is all sort of odd growth at age 32, um, but it seemed like it was going to be sustainable again not the 194 ERA being sustainable, but, you know, this sort of broader new Danny Duffy seemed like, you know, the velocity and the swing strike rate were going to hold because those things stabilized fairly quickly. But now tender flexor tendon, excuse me, strain, and, you know, that's going to be a significant injury. You know, we don't really know if it's weeks or months at this point, uh, but it's going to be one of these shut them down have him ramp up again from scratch in you know, four weeks or something like that. And if we see him by the all-star break, I think that would be really good news. But, you know, the question becomes what the Royals are going to do here. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, there's Daniel Lynch who came up and got tattooed for three starts and got sent back down to the minors. Uh, I should mention that Chris Bubik probably would have been the guy who got the call here, but Bubik is up in Lynch's spot. So now they've got to go to somebody else and Duffy. Uh, to replace Duffy, and it could be Lynch if he pulls himself together pretty quickly in the minors, or there's a bunch of other places they could turn. Uh, we've talked here about Jake Junis before, who's kind of swung back and forth between the rotation and the bullpen a couple of times. They could go to him for some spot starts. Um, they also have some prospects. There's Carlos Hernandez, Jackson Cower, Ronald, Ronald Bolanos. Um, I have not personally checked to see how those guys are doing in AAA. It's probably too early to discern anything, but in two or three weeks, when they decide when they have a bigger sample in AAA and decide uh, how they want to how they want to fill this in, then uh, you know it'll, it might be a bake off between those guys as well. Duffy was really effective in 2016. I had a four and a half strikeout to walk ratio, which is something that we really like. I think he was like a 350-ish ERA, which is a, a career best uh, up until now. And that, uh, this year he's down around 194. As you mentioned, uh, his expected ERA was four, but his FIP was only about 230. So there was some skills underpinning going on here. And I think it largely had to do with the strikeout rate going well up, the walk rate coming quite a, quite a ways down. And all of a sudden it looks like he's putting things together. But you mentioned the velocity increase and what we know about elbow injuries is that we used to think it was sliders and breaking balls that was causing the trouble, but in fact, it turns out it's throwing the ball hard that causes the most trouble. And maybe he was just amping up what looked like a declining career and uh, paid the price. Yeah, it could very well have been, uh, you know, time to let it all hang out. I mean, you know, I, I got knocked around, you know, last year, you know, short season ERA near five. You know, I'm going to let it all hang out and see how long the elbow will take it and what well, we found out, right? Yes, exactly so. And finally, Ray, you had a GM's office article uh, last week. Uh, it was pretty uh, timely because Ron Chandler used to say May 15th is around the time that you can start looking at your team and seeing what it is. It's been long enough going that you now have an idea uh, where you probably are going to fit into the standings in your leagues, which means it's time to look at your roster and make some decisions. And that's what you wrote about. Yeah, I did. I, I'd been eyeing some trends in my standings uh, so far this year. And I, I don't know if you've seen the same thing, Patrick, or if it's my own little personal nightmare. But um, my team's batting average, or in the case of Tal Wars, on base percentage, have all been universally terrible. I'm like in the bottom two or three teams in the standings in batting average or OBP in virtually every one of my leagues. 
I mean, if there's good news, it's that the rest of my counting stats have actually been pretty good. Usually if your batting average is terrible, your entire offense just sinks to the floor with it because, you know, the counting stats are all getting suffocated by that, uh, by, by that batting average. But that hasn't been the case. The, my home runs, RBIs and runs, et cetera, have all held up pretty well. So I, I kind of went shopping in Tout Wars looking for a boost to the on-base percentage and said, well, the rest of my offense has been pretty good. If I can go buy some OBP, I would, you know, I, I might be able to duct tape this offense back together. And I had a pile of saves to burn. I had four closers. So I went shopping for uh, for a couple of trades and, you know, kind of walked uh, walked everyone in the column through my, uh, through my thought process, through some of the negotiations with two or three people. And I ended up making two trades, which was kind of fun. So it was a, uh, it was an entertaining week on the uh, Tal Wars trade wire. Who'd you deal with and give us the details on the couple of those trades? Yeah. So first one was with Tim McCullough. Um, I, I was peddling saves and he didn't want saves, but he wanted, he, he asked for one of my starters. So I ended up trading my Sean Manaya and Luis Urias for Colton Wong and Brandon, Brandon Nimmo. Uh, you know, Nimmo's banged up obviously, but you know, Wong and Nimmo should be two OBP solves for my, uh, for my woes there. And then funny enough, one of the other guys I was talking to was uh, Tom Kessich from the uh, NFBC. And we had been batting. I'd been asking him about DJ LeMayhew concurrently to the other negotiation. And I didn't really find a fit. But f- funny enough, as soon as the Wong Nimmo trade got announced in the, uh, you know, in the league email, uh, <laughs> Tom responded right away. He was like, oh. You have Wong now. <laughs> How about you send me Wong and Alex Reyes, who was the, one of the closers who I was trying to trade all along, for uh, DJ LeMahieu and Blake Trinan. So I kind of uh, and so I netted out with LeMahieu and Nimmo for my offense, and uh, I lost Manaya and I lost uh, the downgrade of uh, Alex Reyes to Blake Trinan. So how how do you th- how do you feel about it in the in the fullness of time? I kind of, I mean, I kind of accomplished my goals. I was, you know, I took a little bit of a risk in acquiring an injured Nimmo and I thought I was going to get away with that. And he would be activated by last weekend, which is what what his initial activation date was and was going to be the date when he hit my roster, but he got delayed. So now I traded for something that's some IDL, which isn't great. But, uh, you know, if, if Nimmo comes back, it, you know, I met my objectives and we'll have to see whether these guys uh, actually do what, uh, the projections say they will do for me. That, of course, is the uh, is the rub here. Well, you know, I didn't just acquire their projections. They actually have to go out and earn it now. Well, it, it's a pretty good bet. It looks like Lemayhu's an on base percentage stud, and that plays in Tout Wars, of course. And Nimmo's actually a good on base guy. Yeah, Nimmo's great. You know, he's uh, you know that's his his core skill. And you know, he was hitting a lot of weed off for the Mets before he got dinged up. And Lemayhu obviously does the same for the Yankees. So you know, it should be a lot of on base percentage. It should be a lot of plate appearances for the denominator and, you know, I, getting two guys and replacing two low OBP guys is better than one in terms of, you know, I just improved two thirteenths of my two fourteenths of my lineup instead of, uh, instead of just one. So I, I acquired, you know, if they're, if they're 350, 400 plate appearances each over the rest of the season, that might be a little optimistic, but you know, that's 800 plate appearances as opposed to just uh, trying to move the needle with one guy. 
And certainly at the time you made the offer, especially to McCullough, it's a nice looking offer for him because he was right at the top of a clump of saves guys. So you're, he's protecting his downside. And I think he was only a save or two out of two extra points in the category moving up. So uh, if Alex Reyes continues to hold the job, which looks likely at this point, you have to say he's 11 out of 11, I think. And uh, doesn't have the skills. Doug Dennis would say Giovanni Gallegos should be the guy closing in right. St. Louis, but and Jordan Hicks got taken out of the picture too. You know the wide the wide rumor was that uh, you know Hicks was more of the threat to the job than Gallegos, and now Hicks is out until July or something like that. So Reyes seems you know pretty secure. And it's also worth pointing out that one of the reasons you had this huge surplus of saves to trade in the first place was some pretty canny late round drafting in, in this particular league. Alex Reyes, you got in the reserve round, uh, Trevor May in the last round of the regular part, Hector Neris, you grabbed right near the end of the draft, uh, Jose Leclerc, uh, not that big of a help, I guess, but Will Smith in Atlanta, you got in round 10 and it looks like he's going to contribute. So you had some, the reason you had some assets to move was because of some pretty canny drafting in the first place yeah this draft was in early march it was like the first week of march so you know I, it, there were some late dart throws you know it was not at all clear at that point that reyes was going to be the closer and i happened to land that one and then i got ian kennedy and uh fab for uh you know t- i think i bid 99 bucks out of a thousand so 10 percent of my fab the night before opening day and i thought i would get a month out of a month of saves out of ian kennedy and i'd be happy because as you mentioned i drafted a clerk and his elbow fell off um but you know so i was i was i, I thought kennedy might you know, hold the job for a little while. You remember back then we were talking about, you know, Jonathan Hernandez taking the job from him and stuff like that. And, you know, here we are, Kennedy's practically the best closer in the game. So not only did I spend out from my strength in Alex Reyes, but, you know, still holding three closers, I've, I've got another one to trade, you know, for my next need. So, you know, three closers with the saves lead I have is is probably more than I need already. So another couple of weeks, I might go try to do this again. On the other hand, if you were to look at your safe situation, you're at 32, McCulloch is at 14. Now, assuming that you're down, say, 16 to 20 on the balance of the season, he's up 16 to 20 on the balance of the season. Is he a threat to you in the safes category? I mean, he might be, but that's, you know, that that's one point. And, you know, I, if, I, if I go back and what I'm doing now is I'm still running three active closers. So I might, I might actually be able to grow that lead or at least, you know, keep it steady for another month to the point where doing that math you were just going through says that, you know, I should be able to hold off McCullough or maybe only one guy catches me. So, you know, I didn't trade, you know, I intentionally didn't deal two or three of them this early because there's so much road uh, runway left in front of us, but uh, I probably won't need the three of them all year long. Well, it's a very interesting column. Uh, I assume you'll be doing more of them as the year goes along. They're they're fascinating reading because it's interesting to see how the process works to get kind of inside your head there for a minute and ignoring the echoes, you, you see some pretty interesting stuff there about how to go about organizing a trade, dealing with your trade partners and so forth. Yeah, that was definitely the intent was to sort of pull back the curtain and, you know, show my thought process, show how I figured out which guys I was going to contact and, and negotiate with and, you know, those, those sorts of things. And, you know, the, the, some of the comments in the article were gratifying and that they made me think I got that right. And that some people were like, you know, one guy said, this was really good. You know, I usually don't trade don't explore trades that often because it's not worth the frustration of, you know, the lousy counter offers and, you know, getting laughed at, you know, for people who value things differently. But, you know, this is going to send me off to go, go look at some of this stuff myself. And I, I thought that was, uh, that, that was what I was going for. So that was good. And where do you stand in the league in the overall standings? Um, 
lower middle. I, I I think I fell as low as 13th out of the 15 this week, but I've been as high as six or seven in the last week or so. There's a big cluster between uh, between like 65 and 80, 85 points. It's a, it's a very clustered uh, standing situation right now. So uh, I'm hopeful that Nimmo comes back and I can start climbing up that ladder again. And one last question. Uh, you you published the the category standing showing yourself with that big saves lead and right at the bottom of the on-base percentage and you're at 308 the next guy in front of you is at roughly 311 then 312 then the big jump is up to 321 do you think when you do the math is the addition of Lemayhu and if Numo comes back and plays is that enough to get you into that next clump into the 320s from where you are now at 308 I think those two guys alone are the are not the answer. They're not going to get me there. I'm going to need going to need some kind of rising tide effect of the rest of the lineup kind of picking it up too. This was you know this didn't this team didn't project as anything like a 308 OBP when I drafted it. It was uh, I don't have it in front of me, but it projected it more like around the league average of you know 328 or 330 or something like that. So if Lemayhu and Nimmo boost it and some of the guys who have been terrible. Uh, you know, get back to what they were supposed to be doing, then that that will be the path toward the middle of the pack at OBP. And of course, when you're trading in those ratio categories, always keep in mind that you can, as you mentioned, addition by subtraction, where if you get rid of a guy whose on-base percentage is like 290 and you don't think it's getting any better, just dropping him and replacing him with a 330 guy gives you a double benefit. You're not only increasing, but you're also decreasing the impact of the guy that you're getting rid of who's pulling you backwards. Absolutely. Even before, you know, in addition to seeking out OBP solves via trade, you know, throwing the uh, throwing the dead wood over the side of the boat is always the first way to stop taking out taking on water, right? And to answer your original question in on base percentage, I'm so far last in Amer- in the Tout American League league that I'm in. Uh, two ninety six is my team uh, on base percentage. I've got five or six guys who are under two hundred, and all I can do at this point because I can't. In uh, American League only, it's much tougher to make trades because the, the categories are tighter, there's fewer guys, and so forth. So all, really, all I can do is hope that some of these guys get off the schneid and, and yeah. start hitting. You know, And if they don't, then I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble anyway, but uh, I'm going to be in on-base trouble all year if something doesn't happen in that regard. And that can, I mean, that could be kind of freeing too, though, because you can stop worrying about on-base percentage and you know, max out at bats, and you don't care about the quality of the, the bats. And yeah. if, you can, uh, you know, if, you, if you can bury everybody in... Uh, in playing time, which is a possibility in the AL only, you might be able to keep the rest of your counting stats afloat at least. Yeah, I'm not going to bury anybody in playing time either. <laughs> this has been a bad year. <laughs> All right, I'm out of good ideas then. <laughs> All right. Well, no, you're never out of good ideas. That's why you're such a valuable addition to the show, Ray. Thanks a million. Catch up with you again next week. Awesome, PD. Thank you. Ray Murphy is co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with the wise guy, Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. Coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here comes Roger Maris. They're standing up, waiting to see if Maris is going to hit number 61. Here's the windup. The pitch to Roger, way outside, ball one. And the fans are starting to boo. Low ball two. That one was in the dirt. And the boos get louder. Two balls, no strikes on Roger Maris. Here's the windup. Fastball hit deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, he's got it. 
HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with the wise guy. It's Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. Gene, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. It is always a lot of fun to talk with you. And uh, do you still use that wise guy moniker at all? Uh, on some of my, it's my fan duel. I'm wise guy Gene. I'm off Twitter. So that was, it was my handle there too, but I couldn't take the poison. So I'm off that. Um, I, I always liked it. You know, I always thought it sort of, it was apt. So, um, I have nothing against it. If you want to call me the wise guy, I'll accept it gradually. Though I've always wondered why a wise guy is bad, but a wise man is good. <laughs> well, it's all about connotations, right? There you go. <laughs> On Tuesday of this week, you had your latest article at The Athletic, this one offering some more of your fantasy baseball musings. And before we get to them, uh, do musings imply there's a muse? And if so, who or what is your muse? You know, I don't know Bill James very well, but I met him a few times. And the first time I met him, which is way back in 1983, he said something to me, which was that sabermetrics, or analytics as we call it now, is not about telling teams what to do when and there. He said sabermetrics is about asking questions and finding methods to getting good answers to those good questions. And that that stuck with me. And I've, that's what that's what my muse is all the time. I try to ask myself good questions, or when other people ask them, and try to find the answers. And and um, thereby increase our knowledge and wisdom. So that is my muse. Yeah, you know, years ago when I was a newspaper reporter, I interviewed a guy, uh, he was a medical researcher, and sort of the standard question you ask under those circumstances is what makes a good researcher? And he said basically the same thing. He said, if you, if, if you think the point is to get answers, then you're not going to have much fun at it, and you're certainly not going to be as successful as you might want to be. He said the key thing about it is curiosity and seeing something and going, huh, I wonder why that is, or I wonder if that is. Like, it is reality conforming to my perception of it? And then, as you said, you've got to figure out how to design a series of questions that will help you uh, address that. And that's what makes uh, any kind of research successful. And certainly, you've been really successful at that. Uh, you started your musings by looking at how well hitters are doing handling particular pitches, uh, talking about the muse and the question. What got you thinking about that? Well, I'm looking for something to combine with other things to get a, a, a more complete picture of, of the particular hitters that we're talking about. And that seemed to me to be a, a, a way to look at what's going on now and what's likely to happen in the future, with, especially with the hitters who are hitting the fastball but are not hitting multiple other pitches. And there are many of them. Um, so I, just take a look, make a list, keep your eyes on it, and um, see what's going on going forward with them. 
your thesis was that hitters who can hit fastballs but who can't hit the off-speed stuff and breaking pitches might be in trouble once their opponents figure that out. I did see some sketchy names on the list of such hitters, Miguel Rojas of Miami, Nico Goodrum of Detroit, whom I offer as the examples because they're on my rosters, but I also see some other bigger names. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton was on the list, uh, DJ LeMahieu. So what do we make of a list that has these kind of polar opposite type hitters? Well, as I said, I'm not sure about the predictive value at all because if a guy has a minor injury, all that can disappear. If he starts seeing the ball better, it can uh, go up in smoke. Um, But I just want to keep an eye on it because it does make intuitive sense that if you are hitting the fastball but not hitting basically anything else, you're not going to see fastballs, at least not as strikes. And so if you start then if you start swinging at fastballs that aren't strikes – it can hurt you on your pitch value with those guys. So, you know, I may, again, I make the list. I want to keep an eye on these guys, watch for what they're doing at the plate when they're not, how they're handling junk, basically. And I suppose uh, it'll be more actionable for guys like Miguel Rojas and Nico Goodrum because nobody's going to drop Giancarlo Stanton on this basis. Certainly nobody's going to drop DJ LeMahieu on this basis just because they're on a, uh, some kind of list. But it could be that the uh, that the opportunity here is to look at those lesser lights and see if they figure it out. This might be the, in BaseballHQ.com, we have a kind of a regular feature that they call uh, one skill away. And so if you can just add that one skill, all of a sudden it fills in the the overall picture. Uh, Joey Gallo made this list and the previous one that we talked about with those hard hitters. What do you think we fantasy managers should make of that fact? I think with Joey Gallo, you just have to be patient um, and realize that at some point he's going to hit 15 homers in a month. Um, I mean, that's basically been his history since he came up. He's got tremendous power. Um, he's not a, a ballpark affected kind of guy because because his power is so massive. Um, I think you just got to. I have him on my main event team, and I'm just I'm in, uh, excruciating patience is my mantra. You also commented that a few of these guys, Randy Rosarena, Dominic Smith of the Mets, Jeff McNeil of the Mets, Kevin Biggio of Toronto. And I'm quoting here, they've been adjusted to, and they're going to have to readjust. What did you mean by that? Well, uh, pitchers know how to get them out now. So it's a question of the pitchers executing and them adjusting back. It's the same old story. This is, you know, baseball since 1906 um, and before. Um, I think that what we should do is watch these guys when they're at the plate, see how they're handling the junk, are they laying off it? Are they swinging at it? Are they learning how to hit it? Um, because it makes a big difference with these guys. These guys can be, you know, great swing potential guys for the rest of the season, all of them. Um, and so I think it behooves us to watch them really closely going forward and see how they're doing with this problem that's pretty obvious. Yeah, you actually wrapped up this part of the column by saying this is well worth watching because all these guys are struggling. But when you say we need to watch for something, what do we need to watch for? Well, as I say, I, the uh, how they're handling the junk. You know, are they laying off it especially? Um, are they learning to hit it, which is less likely, but certainly possible with hitters. I mean, these guys, are, these are talented hitters. Um, they can 
learn and they can make the adjustment. But the easiest adjustment to make is to not swing at those pitches unless you have to swing at those pitches because many times, much more often than a fastball, they're not strikes. So I, I think we got to watch these guys at the plate and see what they're doing and seeing how they're handling this. For a, a regular listener who might not be as tuned into all of the sources of analytic data, uh, where can a listener go and sort of quickly figure out whether a Rosa Rainer or Smith or McNeil or Biggio and these types of guys are figuring it out? Where's the where's the stat resource that uh, that uh, your average listener, your average fantasy baseball player can turn to to get that kind of uh, update? Um, if you have a baseline, you can find it at Fangraphs, and the, they have the pitch value down towards the bottom of it. Um, and then there is the eyeball test. I mean, I think you can you can learn from just from watching how they're handling the curve, how they're handling the change of the slider, the cutter, etc. Um, between those two things, I would, uh, and I think the eyeball test is going to be reliable here because it's going to you're looking for something specific, and you'll see you'll see specific. Uh, you know, outcomes. Did he take it? Did he swing? Did he miss? Um, did he nail it? Um, so between those two things, that's what I would do. You know, and since you say that, I do tend to watch my own players as we all do when the opportunity arises in a game and I have Kevin Biggio on a team and I have a couple of other Jays. So I end up watching the Jays a lot. My wife likes the Jays. So we, that's another reason. And I've noticed even before I read your column, I noticed that Biggio just seemed to be swinging at breaking pitches in a lot. And and it seemed like everybody in the league figured it out except for him because every pitcher was throwing that kind of back foot slider that comes in a little bit inside and then breaks sharply inside further. And he was swinging and missing at it constantly. And it's sort of reassuring in a way to know that I'm not just imagining things, but it's also distressing in a way because he doesn't... He didn't seem to be improving that particular aspect of his game at all. But of late, I think I've seen that he's not swinging. And that's the, I think, as you said, that's the key aspect here. I'm not expecting him or even wanting him to swing at that pitch and make contact with it because even if he succeeds at that, it's probably going to be a dribbler somewhere in an easy out. What I want him to do is not swing at it at all. And now I'm going to keep an even further eye on what I can see on the TV screen, but also, of course, go into the, uh, you know, you can go to Baseball Savant, too. I don't know if you're a Savant user, but uh, Fangraphs has yes. that data as well. Yeah, you know, one of the things about Biggio is that um, in his brief career, he's had an unbelievably huge split between when he's ahead in the count and when he's behind in the count. Now, the normal MLB split is very high. It's, you know, 450 points in OPS, but his was like a thousand points in OPS between when he was ahead. Basically, if you got ahead of him, he was out. And if he got ahead of you, he did something good. Um, so that's another thing to, uh, to watch it. Another, you know, he has to lay off pitches that are not strikes. Um, and he's not a, he is a very patient hitter. Um, but that's his, I mean, that's what's standing between him and stardom. Yeah, that was something else I noticed about him and a couple of other guys that you mentioned is that uh, f for some reason the the swing and miss at the breaking stuff seems to be making them a little bit vulnerable to to fastballs right down the middle of the plate that they take because they're, I wonder if they're just so 
attuned to the fact that they're swinging and missing at this non-fastball stuff that they're seeing that when it when anybody does throw him a fastball they're surprised by it because you know like you said earlier if a guy proves he can't hit a breaking ball why would you throw him a fastball and every so often somebody throws uh, I've seen Biggio look at strike three fastballs like more often than you'd expect for a guy who apparently can hit fastballs yeah he does have a low swing rate at pitches in the zone we call it JD do JD Drew syndrome I don't think I ever saw a pitcher who took more 2-0, fastballs right down the middle. And it really hurt him in his career. I mean, I think he could have been a great player, and he was only a decent player. And that may happen with Biggio. Sometimes hitters need to be more aggressive rather than less. Yeah, I, I, and I bet he knows that. And I wonder if that's just frustration for, for him, as I said, that, you know, I've got to be looking slider all the time because I can't hit the slider, so I have to lay off it. And then when a fastball comes, you just think, oh, it's a slider, and then it doesn't break, and it just, you know, right down the middle, as I said. It's it's pretty tough to watch, actually, if you have a player like that on your roster. Uh, there's a, a bunch of guys like that, as you said. And do you think that there's any role being played here, or what do you think the role being played here in the ability of pitchers to improve their mechanics through you know, laboratories and drive line and, and advanced coaching and stuff like that, that it's just getting harder for some players to see these kinds of things than it used to be? I don't know. It's possible. But again, there's a lot of bad pitchers out there, and the good pitchers are pitching less, which means that the bad pitchers have to pitch more. So I think it should come out on the wash. Um, you know, if the guy strikes, you strike out in the first and the third inning, but you hit a three-run homer in the seventh and the ninth. I remember I read somewhere that you said, this is a bit of a digression here, but you were talking about how the all of the coaching and all of this kind of stuff, and yet we're getting more pitchers hurt more often, that uh, there's more and more pitchers in the game and the lesser ones are pitching more and the better ones are pitching less. How does that all work? Well... I mean, as of yesterday, there were 119 pitchers with at least 10 innings who had ERAs over five. If you count all pitchers, you know, the guys who were coming and going, uh, there were 217, and that's more than seven per major league team. Um, And with the good pitchers pitching less, they're the guys who are pitching more. And um, it shouldn't be that difficult. for hitters, uh, until, you know, I think Mickey Lolich is rolling over in his grave. I looked him up last night. You realize that over a six-year period, he averaged 308 innings per season. And this is the 70s. This is not, you know, this is not the dead ball era. Um, I don't, and I don't see any evidence that pitching less is helping pitchers stay healthy. Quite the contrary. There has to be some middle ground here. There certainly has to be some rethinking of the training methods that are causing, especially all the soft tissue injuries. That uh, It's a scandal, really. I mean, these guys are professional athletes, and it's true. They look like uh, Greek statues. They're chiseled, but, um, but they can't stay on the field. And, uh, you know, a lat here and a... You know, a couple of years ago, a guy asked Tom Seaver, he was talking to Tom Seaver, and Tom Seaver was curious about Noah Syndergaard, and he said, well, he's on the DL with the, the IL with a strained lat. And Seaver said, 
what's a lat? <laughs> I mean, a lot of these muscles, they were never hurt. You never heard of a, hitters with obliques and lats. Uh, you know, hamstrings, sure. You know, but all these soft tissue muscles that uh, that shouldn't uh, they shouldn't be affecting baseball players. There's something going on here that's wrong, and I think that teams, some smart team, is going to redo their entire training regimen, and they're going to have healthy players, and they're going to beat the teams that don't have healthy players. Yeah, I wonder two things about that. The first is. I wonder how many, uh, of course, we remember the Seavers and we remember Mickey Lolich and we remember, you know, guys who are throwing 270 innings, Nolan Ryan, guys like that, because they stood out from the crowd. Uh, I wonder whether this is something I think would be easy to do some research. Maybe I'll look into it. I wonder if, if when we go back and look at, you know, 1968 or 1969, um, whether we're going to see that there were just as many pitchers who, who weren't throwing 300 innings as there are now, that there were guys getting hurt and they were, because the league was smaller, there was a greater availability of minor league guys you could call up who were probably a little better because you weren't distributing them amongst 30 teams, but amongst 16, all these kind of things play into it. And I also wonder, Gene, if maybe back in the old days that a pitcher would come into the training room and say, there's something wrong with and point to his lat, even if he didn't know what it was called, but this hurts. And the, the typical response back in those days, if you remember ball four was spin on it, rub some dirt on it. You'll be okay. <laughs> and the guy, would be, oh, okay. You know, and he'd uh, grab a chaw of tobacco and go out and, and just throw, or uh, was it Sal Magley who said that the, the cure for any pitching injury was to stand on the right field line and throw the ball over the left field foul pole, you know, those kinds <laughs> of things. And, you know, they make great stories, but maybe the, the fact that medical science in, in kinesiological science has advanced the first time a pitcher who's being paid millions of dollars comes to the trainer and says, I got a problem with this part of my, uh, my body or something's hurting that their instinct is not to just dismiss it as it used to be, but to, but to say, uh Oh, let's get to the bottom of it. Let's take you off the mound. Let's make sure this is okay because they're taking a longer run view. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's possible. It's also possible that there's a middle ground between the two positions. Um, uh, usually, you know, something like that is, turns out to be the right thing. Um, I don't know. I, it's something that what it, but I do know that what they're doing now is not working. So they should they should be looking at alternatives. They should be looking at 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 ways to do it. And to me, it's very obvious that baseball players should not be lifting weights. I mean, it doesn't really help you in the game. I mean, it's not. Baseball has always been a game that, that's. I mean, strength is a factor for sure. But it's not that important. It's certainly not as important as it is in other, in other, uh, in other sports. And I, I'd be looking for the middle ground. And just once, I'd like to hear some players say, "I'm going to err on the side of risk." <laughs> well, and then, like the team, the player has a lot of incentive not to err on the side of risk because he's got million dollar years or ten million dollar years coming down the pike unless he gets hurt in such a way that he can't maintain his career. So the the economic incentives are all against 
the kind of uh, approach that I think we all agree would be better as far as keeping pitchers on the field, but uh, the the risk that the team bears, the risk that the individual player bears mitigate against doing that, uh, all of which is very interesting. And it makes me wonder, Gene, if the next sort of threshold, the next money ball thing that is going to be exploited is when they start figuring out what kind of body types that you want for pitchers insofar as, you know, fast twitch muscles versus slow and build and all of these kind of things when they figure that out and they'll pre-select for injury risk. Yeah, well, I mean, there are people out there who were looking at it, you could be sure, but I don't know if it's made it to the to the team level. You know, there's another factor here, and it, it's a broader thing, and that's part of what sports is all about, which is heroism. You know, I mean, we're very analytical and we're, you know, granular in looking at things. We're watching sports to see people be heroes. And when that angle, if that angle really leaves the scene, there's no real reason to watch sports. So, you know, we should be thinking about that, too. Yeah, that's... Uh, uh... That's interesting, and I think it's a problem for all sports, except maybe there are some of the lower contact ones. Uh, I know soccer, the the guys, I think, are a bit better at staying on the field, and then some of the individual sports like tennis and those kinds of things. But nobody wants to watch those things, especially in uh, North American audiences. Uh, while you were talking about pitchers, uh, you discussed looking for pitchers with what you called macro strikeouts and micro walks. What did you mean by that? I, I just lots of strikeouts, not very many walks. Well, it's something. Yes, or extremes in both. Yeah, uh, so I picked it up from Scott Pianowski, uh, our friend, um, friend to all, um, and it's basically all you need to see when you see somebody doing extraordinary things in both those. Um, if you take the time to look at the, you know, to dig deep into them, you'll always see that it's justified. Um, and that makes it all you really need to see. So when you see that, go ahead and pick the guy up because you can also figure that whoever he is, he's going to be pitching more because good pitchers are hard to find. And you said it's better to take the guy with more batters faced if you have a decision to be made. And the example you used was Cole Sulser of Baltimore. And who knew? This guy's got 21 strikeouts and two walks in 50 batters faced when I checked, I think, on Tuesday. And Austin Adams of San Diego, 24 strikeouts, four walks in slightly more batters faced. And then you say it might be... a not so simple. Anyway, my head is spinning, Gene. Lay out the case of this cold Sulcer Austin Adams thing. Well, um, the thing is, is that either, of, first of all, either of them is going to help, I think. Um, but the batter's face per start, obviously we want that because it greatly increases the chance of getting a win, especially if you finish two innings. Um, but if, it's possible in the, in the one case where one of the guys has a big platoon split, and that's that's Sulcer. Um, it's a reverse platoon split, actually. So although he's facing more batters, the future in the future he might face fewer batters. And I mean, it's again small samples, and the split may be irrelevant. That's what I say. Um, and then Austin Adams, who is pitching, who's facing fewer batters, is pitching so well that it's 
almost inevitable that he's going to be facing more, more batters as the season goes on. And of course, San Diego is a great place to pitch um, as far as getting wins is concerned. So uh, I might lean towards Adams Oval Seltzer in that situation, but in any case, I'd be happy to pick up either one of them and will do so. In that same column, Gene, back to the hitters, you looked at top hitters by overall P-Val, which includes negative values, but the list allows a hitter to have one pitch that uh, does have negative value. Uh, first of all, what's P-Val for people who aren't familiar? Uh, it's just a, it's a metric that uses, uh, you know, standard linear, um, you know, base out situations and what the hitter does and it puts a run value on uh, on what he's doing against that particular pitch. Okay, and some guys have negative values as we'd expect, but you said the your list that you built allows a, pit, a hitter to have one pitch with negative value but not more. So this list is basically a who's who of fine, very productive hitters. So what was the goal of breaking this down? Well, again, it gives me it gives you an extra thing, and I use it in combination with other things, like hard hit rate, like strike zone discipline. You know, if you're hitting all pitches and you're not swinging at balls, you almost have to be really good. And as these guys are doing, and I put an asterisk over the ones who were at least three points better at not swinging at pitches out of the strike zone. And when you look at those guys, it's I mean. It's, these are the, you know, the all first three round or almost all first three rounder guys. And the guys who were exceptions to it are guys that you have to figure are going to be really good going forward. And there were a couple of surprising names on that. Uh, most notably, uh, Carson Kelly. Carson Kelly, the Arizona catcher was also part of a list uh, that you kind of sub divided by giving an asterisk for players at least three points better than league average at not swinging outside the zone and a couple of surprising names you mentioned Carson Kelly but also another catcher Buster Posey how about that well you know I don't think we should be surprised Buster Posey's a Hall of Famer and Hall of Famers as you know tend to age well he had a whole year off last year, which, I mean, uh, you know, for some players that might be bad for a catcher, it might be just what the doctor ordered. That was certainly true of Salvador Perez, who had missed uh, 2019. He came back with a vengeance last year. Um, so, I, I mean, in the future, I think this is something to, to watch. I mean, catchers who are going to the Hall of Fame are pretty rare commodities. You're not going to get that much of a chance. But I think that every indication is that Buster Posey is absolutely for real. And it shouldn't have been totally unexpected. Well, anybody that age, I guess that's what, and the wear and tear of catchers, that's what we hear all the time. But there's also a baseball HQ thing that says catchers tend to mature later as hitters which may not exactly apply to uh, to Buster Posey because he was an excellent hitter at a very young age. But I wonder if maybe this is kind of a corollary to that in that uh, we can expect older catchers to maybe rebound a little more than older other players. Absolutely. Ed Spaulding from the Houston Chronicle first published it on Baseball HQ probably 25 years ago, the theory of the late-blooming catcher that I've been exploiting ever since and and actually i mean to be fair to us we had noticed this going further back and it's probably been going on since the beginning of time in baseball that catchers bloom later because of their 
presumably because of their defensive responsibilities. And it takes them a while, therefore, to uh, to learn to recognize pitches. And, and then, you know, as, as long as they still have the physical attributes, then they can benefit from it. Another player on this PVAL list, not a guy who's asterisked for his uh, ability to avoid swinging at bad pitches, but Jared Walsh of the Angels was on a lot of tout lists, including yours, coming into the season, and it looks like it's paying off. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I said about him before the season that he was a a, a corner infield, a, a, a legitimate first baseman going as a corner infielder, and that's the way it has turned out to be. Um, I think he's absolutely for real. And if you can get a bet down on him getting a hundred RBIs, you with some decent, you probably should get some decent odds on that. I think that that's, you know, not a lock, but a really, really good bet. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball and uh, writer for The Athletic. And Gene, uh, I'd like to wrap up these discussion by looking at some slumps, pumps, dumps, and jumps. Uh, slumps are players struggling but worth hanging on to. Pumps are guys you should sell high. Dumps, underachievers, and jumps, guys we should be jumping on if they become available in the free agent pools. Uh, let's start with a slump. This is somebody you think is struggling but you'd hang on to. Uh, I got a couple. Uh, Lourdes Gurriel. Um, looks like he's beginning to turn it around. Um, the big thing that he's he's had problems hitting on the road this year. Again, I blame the weather. I, li- I love his uh, sweet spots percentage for his batting average, and we know he's got power. The sweet spot percentage stat, by the way, is not a great stat for overall ability, but it is a pretty good batting average indicator, and he's hit for average in the past. The weather's warming up. I like him. Another guy uh, is Pete Alonzo. Um, he's walking. He's got excellent hard hit rates. He's... Uh, his strikeouts are, you know, twenty-five and a half percent, which is not bad for a guy with his power. So I think he's a really good bet. I think he should be the favorite to lead majors and homers from now on. Um, I would have added Jose Abreu, but he's already snapping out of it, and I think that we could. Can, he's going to be Jose. The only reason I was kind of against him this year was because he was so good last year. Uh, but I think from now on, he'll, he'll be 290, 355, 20 for the rest of the season. How about a pump? This is a player overachieving and worth selling high while you can. Uh, Yerman Mercedes. Uh, again, he's a major league hitter. Um, but he's kind of Eric Thames 2021. Um, he's not this good. And he'll they'll they'll begin exploiting him, and he'll he'll wind up as a solid major league hitter. But he, he's headed down. One question I had about Yermin Mercedes from the start is: Major League Baseball is usually really good at identifying guys who can play, and this guy's relatively old for coming into the major leagues uh, and and doing this well. And maybe it all fell into place in the minor leagues, or he figured something out. But uh, to me, that's a bit of an indicator that uh, that he might be out over his skis a little. Yes, it is. But it's also something, and I, I very early in the season, I said I had a bone to pick with the prospect watchers. Um, if you look at this guy's minor league record, it is clear that he can hit. And anybody who can hit is going to make the major leagues. I mean, his problem was that he didn't have a position. But 
you know, as I say, if you can hit, you're going to make the majors. And I think the prospect watchers uh, fell down on the job a little bit there. And what did you make of him uh, hitting a home run off of uh, whoever it was that was throwing uh, meatballs up there? Williams Astadio, I think, of Minnesota was in a blowout and he was lobbing in like 50-mile-an-hour fastballs, if you can call it fast, at that uh, slow rate. And uh, your Mercedes teed off and there was a big hue and cry about it. Uh, what did you make of that? I think it's a disgrace to use position players as pitchers. And I think that they should be tattooed mercilessly. And uh, to make people realize how ridiculous it is, especially when you have an eight-man bullpen that you can't use a, an actual pitcher to pitch. Not to mention the fact that it greatly increases the chance of somebody getting hurt. How about a dump player? This is an underachiever you don't think is going to recover and should be replaced. Eddie Rosario. Um, he's not a walker. His hard hits are down. He's being sh his fly balls are down, and he's shifted a lot, and he's not adjusting to it. Uh, you know, in uh, Tout American League, I saw Eddie Rosario's name on the. I'm willing to trade Eddie Rosario if you'll uh, give me something good back. So <laughs> maybe from your lips to somebody in uh, Tout War's ear. Uh, how about a jump hitter? These are a target if you're available in in the free agent pool. You're going to jump on this guy. Well, I looked at my NFBC main event free agent list, and the name that stuck uh, stuck out was Jonathan Scope. I don't think there's anything wrong with him. He's a solid power hitter. He's not going to kill you in batting average. Again, the weather's warming up, and um, I uh, another guy is we talked about was Philip Evans. You know, I don't think he's going to be spectacular, but I think he's going to be a solid producer, especially if you can get him in an NL league. Um, I would I would jump on that. And just a word to the wise for anybody who uh, thinks Jonathan Scope's little mini surge this week might be an indicator. It's because I put him on my bench, and anytime I do that, that's when they start hitting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's always a way to get them going. That's right. I should open up a tout service and charge people money just to tell them who I'm benching and who I'm putting active, because then they can do exactly the opposite and and win lots of money in uh, NFPC. Uh, how about a jump pitcher, a pitcher who's in the free agent pool that you think uh, might be worth a flyer? Um, there are no starters. They're just a load of junk. Um, so the guy I would focus on is Tyler Chatwood. I think he could be closing in 10 minutes. He's clearly, um, he's made huge strides with his control and he, uh, the, he, the situation in, is wide open for him to be closing in 10 minutes. Gene McCaffrey slumps uh, Lourdes Gurriel of Toronto, Pete Alonso of the Mets uh, pump, Yerman Mercedes of the White Sox, his dump, Eddie Rosario of Cleveland, uh, jump hitters, uh, Jonathan Scope of Detroit, Philip Evans of Pittsburgh, and a jump pitcher, Tyler Chatwood of Toronto, and stay away from the starters, Gene says. Uh, uh, Gene, thanks a million. Uh, remind us where listeners can keep up with Gene McCaffrey. Well, one thing, Patrick, do I get a hump? Sure. A player you like so much. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. My hump is Johan Moncada. I think that he's been suffering terribly from the weather. Um, he's fundamentally sound. He's done it before, and I would be all over him to uh, to to finish really strong. As far as where you can reach me, um, I have one weekly column at the Athletic. Uh, the Athletic is running a dollar a month subscription drive. I would strongly urge everyone to subscribe because, I mean, not just for the fantasy content, which I think is really good, 
but also for the just information content, they've got beat writers uh, who are on top of all 30 teams, and I think it's well worth your while. And certainly the price is right at a dollar. Actually, the price is right at whatever the full rate is. It's a terrific resource for baseball fans in general, but uh, I think the underappreciated thing from a fantasy perspective, you have a lot of good fantasy writers, including Gene uh, yourself, but there's the real benefit, I think, is those beat writers because you're getting the inside dope a lot of times ahead of time on what's going on in bullpens, what's going on in batting orders, these kinds of things that the fantasy writers can't really focus on to that extent because you're, you're looking at bigger picture stuff like you are and, and other fantasy writers there are talking about a lot of the analytical stuff, a lot of the theoretical stuff. But boy, uh, uh, the game of fantasy baseball is often won and lost on that transactional stuff that The Athletic does such an excellent job of keeping us up to date on. Thank you. Yes, more than ever these days. Well, Gene, I expected this would be fun. It certainly was. You know, I think the world of you. I'm so glad that you can come on the show uh, every so often, and I'll sure be in touch with you, get you back again later in the season. Thank you so much for having me, Patrick. It's always a true pleasure to be with you. Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, writes regularly for The Athletic. Quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer and my extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Back of throws. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Texas right-handed reliever DeMarcus Evans is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He has an elite high-spin four-seam fastball that pairs well with his power curve, according to Baseball HQ's 2021 Baseball Forecaster. Of course, we're talking about 24-year-old Texas Rangers high-powered reliever, DeMarcus Evans, who should be on the fast track to high-leverage innings and high strikeout totals in Arlington in 2021. In fact, Baseball HQ's Jack Thompson is January 21st, 2021 Plague Time Tomorrow column on BaseballHQ.com described DeMarcus Evans as another Texas Rangers arm with power stuff and late-inning potential, along with control questions. Perhaps some serious control questions. That's why 24-year-old hard-throwing Texas Rangers reliever DeMarcus Evans, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth the flyer if he is still available in your league and especially in keeper leagues. Digging deeper, something we love to do at BaseballHQ.com, DeMarcus Evans, through two levels of the Miners in 2019, issued 39 free passes in 47 appearances, or 60 innings pitched. That translates to a less-than-stellar control rate of 5.8 walks per game, where we at BaseballHQ.com recommend targeting pitchers with control rates of 2.5 walks per night or less. Ouch! 
Approaching this another way, DeMarcus Evans posted a walk rate of 16%, meaning he walked 16% of the batters he faced. Yikes! However, DeMarcus Evans also struck out 100 batters in his 47 appearances in 2019 for an exceptional strikeout rate of 43%, meaning he struck out almost half of the batters he faced. Wow! That translates to a dominance rate of 15 strikeouts per nine, where we at BaseballHQ.com recommend targeting pitchers with dominance rates of nine strikeouts per nine or higher. Not to mention, DeMarcus Evans posted a minuscule 90 ERA in his 47 appearances in 2019, earning him Texas's organizational Minor League Reliever of the Year honors for the second straight season. Impressive. Plus, his success continued at the Major League level in 2020, posting a 2.25 ERA in four Major League appearances, small sample size, for the Texas Rangers in September. In other words, the numbers are excellent, and the late-inning potential seems unlimited. So again, following the sage advice of the 2021 baseball forecaster, be sure to stash 24-year-old potential Texas Rangers future closer, DeMarcus Evans, somewhere safe, and preferably somewhere fireproof, as our flamethrowing frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his frequent flyer commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about show number one, A Visit from the Past. A while ago, I asked Ray Murphy for some information about Baseball HQ Radio, and he put on his hard hat, one with the lamp on top, and went down into the Baseball HQ archives in a salt cavern at an undisclosed location near Radwell, New Mexico. It's only a coincidence. Ray found the information I asked for in a golden box with strange, almost cuneiform writing on top, a charm or an incantation, maybe a message from a distant civilization, and when we translated it, it said, buy skills, not roles. And not only did Ray send along the information I asked for, he threw in a little bonus. During his spelunking, he had also found an old edition of Baseball HQ Radio, dated back to 2005. Right away, this was something of a revelation. I've been asked before, and I've talked about when the show started, and I always said I remembered it as having occurred in 2006. Mind you, I also remember my youngest daughter's name as Leo and the dog's name as Olivia, so I might not have been the most trustworthy source on memory-related matters. Anyway, Ray had attached the old MP3 file in his email, so I blew off the cobwebs, loaded it into my Audacity audio production, and I heard, well, this. Broadcasting from Manhattan Beach and the World Wide Web, you're listening to CHSRHealthyLife.net. As a service to our listeners, this program is for general information and entertainment purposes only. CHSRHealthyLife.net does not recommend, endorse, or object to the views, products, or topics expressed or discussed by show hosts or their guests. We suggest you always consult with your own personal, medical, financial, or legal advisor. What the hell? Consult your own personal, medical, financial, or legal advisor? Was this going to be a clip of Baseball HQ Radio hosted by Jim Cramer or one of those guys touting the latest implement to drain your sinuses? It's not a great way to start a show, if you ask me. 
But as it came back, I remembered the show in its early days was actually produced by an outside third party, a company whose business model was to originate audio content for an online network of lifestyle programming, sort of like those TV networks whose stock and trade is psychic hotlines, online shopping, and that weirdly entertaining guy who sells sham wows. And apparently some of it might have been sketchy enough to require you to consider consulting an advisor. But after that inauspicious show opening, they made up an exciting little stinger to open the show. And then came a familiar voice, the one in my head that tells me to stop eating so many peanuts, maybe go for a walk once in a while. Well, good day, fantasy baseball fans, and welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David, rotisserie columnist and roster advisor on BaseballHQ.com, and I'll be your host today on our leadoff broadcast. Now, did you hear that? Our leadoff broadcast. It's the very first show of Baseball HQ Radio. This belongs in the Smithsonian. This belongs in the Baseball Hall of Fame. At the very least, we should toss a copy of it into the memorabilia closet at the FSWA. If you're wondering why my usually mellifluous voice sounds so tinny and distant, it's because we did the whole thing over the phone. We dialed into the production studio in California, and adding to the acoustic nightmare, I was in a conference room at my office with whiteboard walls and floor-to-ceiling windows. With all those flat, reflective surfaces and me on a speakerphone, it's no wonder I sound a little roomy. So anyway, after a brief introduction, we got down to business with the first ever guest on Baseball HQ Radio, some guy called uh, Schembler or Chandler. Oh wait, I've got it. But now let's get started with our first guest, the founder and editor of BaseballHQ.com and the baseball forecaster, Ron Chandler. Ron, welcome aboard. Hey Patrick, thanks for having me, and it's great to be doing radio here. We've uh... We've done all sorts of different uh, venues in the past, but this is the first time uh, Baseball HQ's got its own radio show, and I think it's going to offer us a whole bunch of opportunities to do things we've never been able to do before. And, uh, of course, they took a look at both of us and decided TV was out of the question, so I'm looking forward to radio as well. You too. We both have faces that are just right for radio, isn't it, That's exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) A face for radio. It's like an Abbott and Costello bit. Not in the sense of actually being funny, more in the sense of making a joke that might have been more comfortable in the 1940s. Ron and I talked for the next 20 minutes or so about Baseball HQ, introducing the listeners to the content, philosophies, and methods of the site. And our discussion was broken up after the first five or six minutes by this. Do you know sports? Then use your sports savvy for profit at MVPSportsbook.com. At MVPSportsbook.com, you can place wagers online quickly and conveniently from the privacy of your home. At MVPSportsbook.com, you can bet on football, basketball, baseball, and much, much more. Sign up with MVPSportsbook.com, and you can also use your pen and password at any of the other sites like MVPRacebook.com, MVPCasino.com, and MVPPoker.com. How do you like that? A gambling site advertising in a fantasy baseball podcast. Who'd have guessed it? The more things change, the more they stay the same, I guess. This particular gambling site was an offshore booking operation, which was all that was allowed at that time, and kind of in a gray area legally at that. Like the guy said earlier, consult your own legal and financial advisor. 
Towards the end of Ron's segment, I challenged him to put his money where his mouth was about the Lima plan, skills not roles, as exemplified by a little-known Seattle left-handed reliever named George Sherrill. Well, this is the perfect type of player that an American League rotisserie league or a fantasy league can pick up for virtually nothing. Nobody's heard of this guy. Um, but the Mariners don't have very many uh, op- uh, options as far as a lefty out of the bullpen, and he's, he's got incredible underlying skills indicators. He strikes out nearly 10 batters per nine innings. Um, his strikeout-to-walk ratio, remember our benchmark is two. His strikeout-to-walk ratio, 5.8. It's just huge. Um, and, and so when you find somebody like that, you can pick him up for virtually nothing at the end of the draft. And the benefit of a guy like this is that maybe he'll give you a few saves, maybe he won't. But at the end of the day, once the season is over, he's not going to hurt your team. And for a lot of fantasy leaguers, they want to make sure they, they put pitchers on their roster that's not going to inflate their ERA. And he's that type of player. In 2006, George Sherrill went 2-4 and four with one save, a 428 ERA, and a 143 whip. He struck out almost 10 hitters per nine innings, but also walked a little over six. In 2007, though, he was 2-0 with three saves and a 236-099 decimal set. He also bumped his dom to 11 strikeouts per nine and cut his walks in half. Ron also recommended some young middle infielders. Middle infielders are always at a premium, and in a couple of situations right now, the talent pool is very, very shallow. Uh, American League second basemen are very, very shallow, so you need to pick up some of the top ones there in order to avoid getting shut out. But there are some uh, interesting names um, who uh, are in the middle relief pool right now, like uh, Russ Adams in Toronto, uh, Jason Bartlett in Minnesota, uh, and the National League Chris Barms in Colorado, and Chris Burke on Houston, who are all young players who are stepping into possible full-time roles on their teams. Um, none of them are going to be superstar caliber players, but all of them have the potential to put up between 400 and 500 at-bats. They all have solid peripheral uh, skill levels, and they all could put up uh, pretty decent numbers. Russ Adams batted two fifty six with eight homers and 11 bags in almost 500 at-bats in 2005. Clint Barmas hit two eighty nine with 10 homers and 6 bags. Chris Burke hit two forty eight with 5 homers and 11 stolen bases. And Jason Bartlett, two forty one with 3 homers and 4 stolen bases in just 224 at-bats. Not bad for endgame picks. Then Ron wrapped us up with a couple of sleeper starting pitchers. Uh, in, the, in the National League, Aaron Harang is constantly on one of our target lists in the American League. Uh, Dan Harum on Oakland is, uh, is another one of those guys who could put up a mid-threes ERA with a lot of wins uh, for a minimal bid. So uh, those are two guys to keep an eye on. Aaron Harang threw 211 innings that year with a 383 ERA and 127 whip along with 11 wins. Dan Heron, meanwhile, threw 217 innings with 373 122 decimals, and he won 14 games. Good calls by Ron. Hmm, wait a second. Ron's hitters, Adams, Barnes, Bartlett, and Burke. Starting pitchers, Harang and Heron. You don't think Ron was doing these picks by alphabetical order? Anyway, after another ad for another offshore bookmaker, although it sounded very much like the same, we came back for a feature talk with Derek McCamey, who was at the time the head of the Baseball HQ Scouting Department, and I asked him for some prospects who might play in 2005 and help their fantasy teams. Derek offered up some hitters like Nick Swisher, who hit 21 homers, Tadahito Iguchi, I didn't even remember this guy, but he hit 278 and 15 homers and 15 bags. Mark Tian, 246, 7 homers, 7 bags. 
And the one guy who never really did pan out, Dallas McPherson, a very top prospect who only hit 244 with eight homers and three bags and spent a lot of time in the minors. Derek's pitcher picks included Scott Casimir, 10 wins, 377, 146. Joe Blanton, 12 wins, 353, 122. Nice one. Jeff Francis had 14 wins, but a 568, 162 set of decimals, and his home ERA was a run and a half higher than on the road. And Edwin Jackson, who had an inauspicious 2005, but went on to throw almost 2,000 big league innings. Finally, I asked Eric for some top prospects who weren't likely to play in the big leagues in 2005. He mentioned Joel Guzman, Prince Fielder, Ricky Weeks, Andy Marte, remember him, Matt Kane, Jeff Neiman, Casey Kochman, and this pitcher. Now, I've removed the team name so that you can take a guess. This guy, uh, as an 18-year-old, just blitzed through two leagues last year, uh, three-plus pitches, uh, which is, which is uh, neat to see. Uh, there's a slight chance that may use him this year. I mean, he, he, he is that good. Um, I've got a chance to see him on a couple of occasions, and uh, I mean, I really like what I see out of this guy. So, did you guess? Number one pitcher in the minor leagues, in my opinion, is Felix Hernandez of Seattle Mariners. The Mariners did use that young Felix Hernandez in the big leagues that year. 12 starts, 84 and a third innings, 4 and 4, with a 267 ERA and a whip of .996. A nice start to what is going to surely be a Hall of Fame career, and a pretty nice call by Derek McCamey, who is now a scout in the major leagues. So that's how it all started back in 2005, the very first Baseball HQ Radio. I usually sign off this extra innings commentary at this point, but in the spirit of the occasion, it seems like I should let my 2005 self take care of that. And that's a wrap for the very first edition of Baseball HQ Radio. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 21st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 25 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, the wise guy Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. Gene, of course, a renowned fantasy baseball analyst and a very stylish writer. Also, a longtime good friend of the show and of me personally. He's a wonderful conversationalist, as you just heard, and as a result, He's a great guest and a great guy to hang with. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and on our Twitter feed, at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and if you can, wherever you catch your pods, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It helps us find new listeners. New listeners help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days with another Friday full edition, with another feature guest expert interview and all the usual great stuff. That's coming up Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, and we'll talk to you again next week. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. 
Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.